Hey girl, how are you? I'm fantastic, how are you? I'm doing well, you look adorable as usual. Thank you, with my WandaVision sweatshirt. Yes, hey. and matching pink, pink sandals. My chunk gloves, thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're probably not technically that, I feel like that's a term for flip-flops, but. You know, I think it is a term for flip flops, but that that rode in my house too. Thank you. Yeah. A little slide, a little slide shoe. Yeah. yeah, super cute. I like to do it like uh, Japanese style, where you put in your little house slippers when you get in the house, and then you leave your shoes at the door. No shoes in the house. Roddy Rich, we got it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just uh, I don't like wearing shoes or pants in my house. Valid. So Who overrated. <laughs> you don't need to. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons why I don't have people come over because I have to put on clothes. I'm like, oh, Ugh, it's like a whole thing. Yeah. No. Pass. Hard pass. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Hard pass indeed. Yes. Yeah. This is another fucking horror podcast, Surprise. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Trayton. So what's up? What's going on? Nothing much. I finally caught up to you and I finished Q Into the Storm. Tell me everything. I'm obsessed. <gasps> right? It was fucking, first of all, it was a fantastically done documentary phenomenal really good yeah the main guy who does it Colin Hoback I think his name is yeah absolutely amazing does such a good job even the like stylistic Mm -hmm. aspects of it I find very interesting and like it really does keep you engaged it was one of those documentaries like I can zone out in a bunch of documentaries but this one like phone down full undivided attention yeah very engaging amazing I don't want to spoil the ending. How do you feel about the ending? Oh, I'm. I feel deeply satisfied. Yeah, and like I like feel validated. A hundred percent. Yes. 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 Uh, I. I want to say a thing, but I don't know how to say it without giving anything away. I think just give a spoiler alert and have people forward. Okay, Amy, we're gonna spoiler alert, and if you do, if you haven't seen the end of Q into the Storm on HBO Max. Fast forward, like, yes. like click the fast forward button like two or three times. Or like plug your ears and la la la. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Like 15 seconds. Yeah, 15 seconds. Starting okay. now. Now, go. So <laughs> the first episode when uh, Ron comes on, I immediately, immediately was like, he's doing the fucking Robert Durst blinking lie move. Like that is the yes. sketchiest thing you ever fucking saw. And I was like, it's fucking him. Like yeah. it's gotta be him. And no one else does that. And right before the last episode dropped... He went on social media saying like Piet and posted, "This is your friendly reminder that I'm not cute." Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. No, of course not. Yeah, um, you are. Fuck you. Okay, spoiler alert over. Done. <laughs> Done. You're safe. Come You're back. Safe. Come back. Come back to us. Come into the fold, yes. my darlings. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, was so good though. So good. I haven't had a documentary with that satisfying of an ending in a long time. I feel like yeah, yeah. So it's like the jinx. Kind yeah, of. basically. Yeah. Even though they couldn't come out and explicitly say. But you know, you fucking know when it ends, though. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just feel like this documentary should be literally mandatory viewing for everyone. 10,000%. Everyone. No matter who you are, I don't care what you believe. Like, every single person should have to watch this documentary because I don't think, one, anyone who is not familiar with what this is understands how fucking monumental and impactful this was. I had no clue. I had no idea. And and I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the people who are into it, like you need to see the other side of it. You need to see where everyone else is coming from. Honest to God. That's your Looney Tunes. My favorite. Yes. My... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I know I fucking rocked some of your worlds last week, so yeah, yeah. We Sorry definitely about that. we My got bad. the DMs of people having existential <laughs> meltdowns about it. I mean, 
That's like my baseline. So I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> my favorite part of the non-spoiler part of mm-hmm. the Q documentary was when that man, it's like the clip of that guy on Anderson Cooper. <laughs> yes. Apologizing to Anderson Cooper saying, I'm really sorry that I thought you ate babies. And then Anderson Cooper's face and reaction is my favorite thing. Yes. Because he literally just looks at him and goes, you thought I ate babies? Well, isn't it that he apologizes for thinking that's, that celebrities did? And then Anderson Cooper, like, it's like, you thought celebrities did this. And then he's like... No, homeboy. I thought, I thought you, you did. did. Yes. And he's like, you thought I ate babies? What? Yeah, he's, you could just see his face of like, are you, this is not why, reality. Yeah. Who, what sane, logical person would ever think this about Anderson Cooper? Yeah. I would say about anybody, but like fucked up shit happens. Uh, for sure. Yeah. 10, so I'm not going to say everybody like, definitively, but. Beyonce's not eating babies. No. Even And if that's what you need to tell yourself. Because Beyonce looks amazing and all of us look the way we do. It's because she's eating babies. Like, I get it, but she's not. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you. (laughs) It's like, not happening. It's not happening. I get it. Believe me. Trust me. me. I want to believe that that's the reason everyone looks so great too. And it's not just because... I don't want to exercise. They're just genetically gifted and and exercise 10 fucking hours a day and don't drink and and don't eat carbs. Have enough money to buy as many beauty products as they want and get as many beauty treatments as they want. Yeah. I do know that there. This is legit. There is a facial. Is it a baby semen facial? What are you talking about? It's the baby foreskin facial. Oh yeah, because that of the is stem cells. Yeah, yeah, that is actually real. That's real. But guess what? You didn't have to kill the baby to get the foreskin. Ten thousand so, percent. Yeah. The thing that killed me is like that's almost almost the episode of South Park where Christopher Reeves is doing stem cell treatments yeah. and is literally like drinking the babies. <laughs> Like, that's all I could think when these people were, like, going on their rants about, like, what everyone was doing, what yeah. these celebrities were doing. And the I was just like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I saw that episode of South Park, too. And guess what? It's a cartoon and it wasn't happening. Yeah. I just, I think people want to be heroes and yeah. saviors. Yeah. it's very true. And that's you know, admirable. Yeah. Sure. And, and it's that thing of it's very admirable to want to take down pedophile rings because they do exist. Yes. Sex trafficking is happening. It's right now. Right now. And that is a thing. And to be against that is to be on the right side of history. However, this is not what's happening. And it's just like a resurgence of the satanic panic of like the 80s and 90s. hundred fucking percent. It's really... It's very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, watch the documentary. It's so good. Fucking phenomenal. Oh, so good. I saw the Tina Turner documentary. Oh, how was it? I oh my god, it. it's so good. Good. It's so good. I'll and check it out. Present day Tina is interviewed in the documentary. Okay. Good to She's know. Eighty years old. Looks like a million fucking dollars. Damn. She looks incredible. Girl. Yeah. And again, she is someone who is a fucking icon. Oh, 100 percent. There's icon. no other word for it. And it's the thing, you know, because. Who the fuck didn't grow up listening? Or not? Even, you didn't even have to listen to Tina Turner. She was just part of the cultural zeitgeist. Like I remember being in the early '90s. She was everywhere on TV because she was the Hanes stocking legs model. I did not remember that. Yeah, legs for days. Days. Oh my god, Tina. And something that I didn't realize until watching this documentary and putting the timelines together when those commercials were running. She was in her 50s. Was she really? Fuck yes. And she looked fucking incredible. She looks incredible now. And it's this thing of 
the thing that's really interesting and eye-opening and ultimately heartbreaking about the documentary is how her entire life and her entire career has been marred by the fact that her ex-husband, Ike Turner, used to beat the fuck out of her. Yes. And because it goes through the whole thing of her being like, of them getting divorced and people okay. being like, are you going to get back together with Ike? Blah, 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 blah. Because she hadn't said anything. She was just like, we're just getting divorced. That's it. Right. Okay. Because it's no one's motherfucking business. I don't have to announce that to anybody. Yes. Facts. Right. And then they aren't leaving her alone about Ike. So she's like, okay, I'm going to write a book. And I think that there was like a People Magazine article where she like spills the fucking tea about everything. Oh, shit. And okay. she's like, I'm going to spill it so that it's out there, it's done, and I don't ever the fuck have to talk about it again. Good for her, yeah. Except no one did that. They brought it up all Constantly. of the fucking time. Yeah. And there's this, and I saw this, I just, I just don't understand why we're all collectively trash people and why we just can't be better. <laughs> what, Pollyanna? <laughs> what are you saying? Are you agreeing with me? No, uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> it is true, but I also am just like, you weren't always a trash person. Oh, though. no. There's hope for you yet. That's where my Pollyanna-ness comes in. That's true. But, you know, and you see all of these clips with people interviewing her and they're gaslighting her and they keep, and it's like, this woman left him like 30 years ago. Why the fuck are we still bringing this up? Yeah. And also she's had this bomb ass fucking career. Why does it even matter? Why the fuck does this clown even fucking matter? Yeah. And there's an interview that wasn't shown in the documentary that I saw after I watched the documentary where she's Skyping into this interview the interviewer plays her a clip of an interview that this interviewer had with Ike Turner, where he talks about beating the shit out of Tina Turner. And he plays it for her and is like, how do you feel about that? Why would I ever want to see that? I lived it. Why? Why? And it's like... Also, like, how the fuck do you think I feel about it? What the fuck does this have to do with my tour? Yeah. Fuck you. And Ugh. because she's the epitome of class and grace and we don't fucking deserve her. Yeah. She's like... You know, when I hear about him, I don't want to hear about him getting arrested. I, I want to hear that he's doing great and he's making a million dollars and he's bettering himself. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. not doing like, this to anyone else. And like, and you know, and then when she, when the iconic movie starring Angela Bassett as Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? Yes. <sighs> My God, obsessed. If you haven't seen it, like stop everything and fucking watch it. It's incredible. You know, she's doing press for the movie and she's like, can or she's at Cannes or wherever the fuck that the movie's yeah, yeah, premiering yeah. and they're interviewing her and they're like have you seen the movie she's like no and they're like why not she's like um I lived it and it wasn't like the best time in my life so no I don't need to fucking watch it I'm sure she did a great job like I'm here I'm to sure support she nailed it. it yeah she's a fucking queen it's Angela fucking Bassett so yeah like, I, I can safely assume she fucking nailed it but like I'm good and it's just they never let her alone about it and it's so fucked up that she just wasn't able to get on with her life when that's all she wanted to do, she was like, yeah. I'm a bomb-ass performer. I'm incredible at what I do. But she always, everything that was written about her, every interview had that coda of, and she used to be married to Ike Turner who beat the fuck out of her. Yeah. And it just reduces, it reduced her to that when she was so much more than this circumstance. And it just was so unfair and so fucked. And I, I read an, uh, an interview with the documentarians who said that they were very careful and apprehensive about doing the documentary and that they would re-traumatize her in the process. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, Fuck. but it's really amazing. And it's that thing of 
every time that she came out and they and she did a song, you know, they have footage of her from different concerts. So they played like yeah, like and and you know playing like Ed Sullivan and shit like that. And she would sing and it, without fail every single time, like full body chills. Like, oh yeah, incredible! It's fucking Tina. Tina, Turner. yeah, come on. Oh my god! It's so that's excellent. It's also on HBO. Check it out. Highly recommend. Fuck. I haven't seen it, so I'll have to... That was a hell of a recommendation. I'll have to... Oh, it's so good. I'll have to do that. And she's just, like, a fucking queen. And of course, yeah. I'm fucking obsessed with her. Of course. And just, there's so many things that, like, I didn't realize, which I guess is what makes a good documentary, right? Yeah, that of course. They, they're informative as well. Oh, it's so good. I learned something today. Every yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, it's That's great. I, I can't recommend it enough. And good. she's just... I will say there's one little spoiler... Oh, it's, it's not a spoiler, but they talk about the song, What's Love Got to Do With It, and how that when she got the demo for it, she was like, no, I hate this fucking song. <gasps> and I was like, Tina? You Tina. saying that gave me chills. Stop it. Oh, my like, God. Tina. No. Do not break my heart. Right? I'm obsessed with this song. Like, I'm still not over Radiohead hating creep. You can't do this to me right now. Yes! I fucking hate What's Love Got to Do With It. <laughs> I literally will never be able to recover. But basically, what happened was... The demo that she got was very poppy. Oh, okay. And she's like, I'm not a pop singer. I want to make it a ballad. And then they reworked it and Tina, Tina did. Yup. And then she was obsessed. I'm like, okay, thank okay. you. Whew. Thank God. Okay, yeah. No. I could not have gone on. <laughs> knowing Knowing that. that Tina fucking hated What's Love Got to Do With It because it's incredible. That is <laughs> a, a like song. sobbing in the shower. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I know I'm not the only one who does this. and be like, ah, what love got to do? Do it. Oh my god, Tina! <sighs> I pictured so myself in my own shower with that one. There you go. I mean, you got to. Yeah, it's a great belter. It yeah, doesn't matter if you're any good, if you're good at singing or not, who goes to shit? But it's just a in very the shower. It doesn't matter. Cathartic. Yeah, everyone sounds great in the shower. Everyone sounds just great in the shower. The 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 acoustics. acoustics. Thank you. Yeah, are fantastic. You got it at the same time. Jinx. Jinx. You owe me a Paloma. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last one. So. <laughs> So I hold over from last week. It's all good. I rationed myself. <laughs> I will. I will go on a on a hunt for more. Thank you My for quest. taking on this this uh, <laughs> difficult task. I appreciate it. Um. Yeah. I uh, watched that, and then I started watching Murder in the Bayou on Showtime. Devastating. A spoiler, because the, the title didn't, was not a clue that it was not going to be a fun time. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, yeah, it's about these women who are low-income sex workers and drug addicts who keep getting found naked oh. and murdered in canals in Louisiana, and no one gives a fuck because yeah. they're on the wrong side of the tracks. And the bayou is, like, the fucking place to hide a body because there's fucking gators and shit, and it's swampland, yeah. like... I've oh. only seen one episode, but one of the women they find in the bayou, they flash her autopsy report on the screen. Yeah. And the reporter reporting, uh, who's like a talking head on this, yes. was saying like, you know, she was in there for a long time and marine life had gotten to her. That's the very nice PC thing that he says. Ooh, oh no. Okay. However, I love, I love to do a pause and read. Oh, goodness. So I read... The autopsy report that they flash, and by marine life, they mean that an alligator yeah. had, like, gone to town on her, and that there was all these alligator marks, like, bite marks on her. And I'm like, oh, oh my god! But yeah, it's the fucking swamp. Like, they're out there. Of course. But it's that thing that, that just doesn't occur to me, because 
I don't want to live in a reality where like an alligator. And I, I understand I'm saying this as someone from Florida. I was like, you came from like the alligator state. What are you talking about? I like living in a nicer version of reality. <laughs> it's that's very fair. I used to give tours of my college and it was on a lake, a really big oh my lake. God. And literally anyone who wasn't from Florida, that was their first question was like, are there alligators in yes. the lake? And literally I like had There's to do alligators like a, in your fucking house. It's yes. Florida. I would literally have to do like a PSA of like any body of water in Florida. I don't care if it's a fucking retention pond behind your house. Like you There's need to there. assume that there is an alligator in yeah. there because there could be an alligator in there. So yes, there are alligators in the lake. That being said, we still swim in the lake. You take your chances. I mean... You're not taking your chances. No, I'm not taking shit. No. But, uh, dude, even if it it floods a little bit, then there's always that on the news, gator on I-95, and you're like, (laughs) welcome to Florida, kids. Like, hey, uh, that's my state. Gators and sinkholes. <laughs> panthers. Oh my god, we have poisonous yeah, we have snakes. Panthers. We're a nightmare. Yeah. Hurricanes. Like what? Yeah, Can't fuck there's you a up. fucking crazy snake that they found in Florida now. That's like um, what? rivals an anaconda or some <gasps> shit. Girl, Girl, I gotta look this up. New snake. New snake. Yay. It's a huge new snake that has been found in Florida. Oh shit. No, thank you. Is it a invasive species? I saw the the headline and like the first little bit. I'm like, I need to be able to sleep. So, so I'm not, not going to keep reading this. Well, it's not going to come to New York, so you're good. I don't fucking know. I don't think it's going to swim up the, is what's going to swim up your pipes and come up your toilet. That is the I mean, it fear of happen. my life. <laughs> if so many people have that fear, and I just I'm going to fucking tell a, you why. No. I'm going to fucking, well, one, it has you happened. You can tell me, it has happened. It has it's still happened. not a fear of mine. But two, more so, even though it has nothing to do with snakes, is in the cult classic, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Okay, no, I have not seen this, so it's enlighten me. I have it's heard awesomely of awesomely bad. Okay, that is my it's very understanding it's of it. Like D movie quality. Okay, if it was made better and had better actors in it, it'd it be really be, good. It'd be fucking great. Oh, all right, noted. So it's it's not just a clever name. It's actually it's killer clowns from outer space, and they they show up and and they're really grotesque looking, and their spaceship is like a circus tent, and they like kill people with like shadow puppets, and like oh, they put them right. in like cotton candy, and it's delicious. That's how I want to die. I mean, one of them does. Yeah, yeah, the cop does. He's a dick, but um, <laughs> a delicious dick. Okay. <laughs> hey. Sorry, I can resist. <laughs> alliteration i know um, <laughs> uh, and it was pervy like i can't no I can't it's not. great yeah so there's a scene that appears in every 80s horror movie where it's the like cute teenage girl has to go take a shower of course because of course. when there's a killer on the loose you always have to shower always so she takes a shower and i don't recall how this happened or why the fuck this happened okay she's taking a shower and then, like, they're, they're clowns, but they look like jack-in-the-box clowns that... You, okay, you know yeah, I mean? like they're on, like, a little spring like, type of thing. Yeah. They're coming out of her toilet, and they're coming out of her hamper, and, like, chomping at her clothes, and she's screaming and running out. And I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm not okay with this. Yeah. Also, I watched the... I was, like, three or five or some shit. I was, you know... My parents didn't supervise any of the shit we watched, a.k.a. Taxi Cab Confessions <laughs> and Real Sex. <laughs> So, <laughs> at a very impressionable young age. But that, I was like, this is very problematic to me. This- Interesting. So that's where this fear yeah. stems from? All right. And to me, I'm like, the clowns aren't going to come out of there. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems like a very rational fear. But 
that's just the idea. Snakes have been known to come out that of there. That is true, yeah. So For it's sure. not that irrational. And I just have a problem with snakes. That's very true. I like I, I'm not like kill all the snakes. I just don't want them near you. I get that. Yeah, I get that. That's my feeling with spiders. Like if yeah, they're close, I fair. might ask you to kill it for me. But like otherwise, if they just keep their space, like I'm cool. We're cool. Yeah, that's fine. You do you. I'll do me. No big deal. Exactly. So I have a a public service announcement. Oh, based on our last episode. Okay. So when Terry uh-huh. is stuck in the garbage can and she's half naked and she's covered in snow and she's calling 911, yeah. we were both like, thank God she had a phone with buttons because you couldn't do this on a touchscreen phone. Yes. There's another thing you can do. There is another thing you can do. And I did not know that, I knew that you could do it like in the back of my mind, but I did not remember what this thing was. Yes. So obviously not everyone has an iPhone, but because that's what I have, Monique has that. I'm going to tell you for a friendly PSA, how to call emergency services. If you're blind, if you're duct tape, your face is completely covered in duct tape. Yes. And you do not have access to see the screen or anything. You can, with the side buttons, make an emergency call on your phone. So you're going to press and hold the side button. And if you continue to hold down the side button and the volume button, a countdown begins and an alert sounds. And if you don't cancel the countdown, it will automatically call emergency services for you. So if you're in danger and you have your phone, but you can't see it or really reach it or bring it up to your face, fucking pull those buttons down, mash them, it will call emergency services for you. So it's both of the volume buttons on the side? Yes. It's like the main button and then the volume button. Okay. Yes. I'm afraid to try this right now because I do not want to bring emergency services to the podcast. Right. However. Or do we? Or do we? (laughs) Choose your own adventure. I'd be like, hey, what are you guys investigating? What's going on? Hi. Hey. Would you like to be interviewed? (laughs) Have a seat. They'll be like, here's your fine. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Um, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. You're that's so welcome. Very, very helpful and, and potentially life saving. I hope so. Yeah. I of course don't want anyone to have to use this, but if you do, I hope that this knowledge serves you yeah. well. Better to know it and not need it than the other way around. Girl, yes, a hundred fucking percent. Thank you so much for that. Of course. Are you ready to regale me with some sort of story? <laughs> I don't know. Will it be spooky? Will it be mysterious? Will it just be unexplained? Um, you tell me. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I am pretty sure I've mentioned that I went to Catholic school. And I went for 11 years. I went six years in grade school, four years of high school, one year of college. And in high school, and, you know, going to Catholic school, one of your classes is religion. Yeah. Which is pretty funny because it's basically Catholicism. It's not really religion class. It's not like world religion where you're like learning about everybody else and their beliefs. Right. They do like a day of that. (laughs) So in high school, your first two years at the high school I went to was taught, uh, religion class was taught by like some rando teacher. Okay. And then junior and senior year, it was taught by the priest who was like the parishioner of the, the school. Okay. Because we would go to, they'd have masses and stuff in school. So it was like junior or senior year. And I'm in religion class with the priest, Father Marino. Hey. I don't forget it. And I believe he had been, uh, he was telling us a story about being in the seminary. I think he was in the seminary. Seminary is essentially like priest school. Yes. You have to go through that before you become a priest. And I don't recall if he was on a mission while in the seminary or outside of the seminary. I know that this is the worst way to start up any story where I'm like, I don't really remember. I don't really remember. <laughs> We're, I'm going to get to the shit that I do remember. 
so I, so I, I hit up, I hit up Christina whose family is very Catholic and who she knows people who are priests. And I was like, do you have to go on missions like during seminary school? And fun fact, if it depends on the order that you're part of, Oh, okay. a lot of them, your missions will be domestic, but other missions like the Jesuits do travel internationally. So they're just racking up those Delta sky miles. Nice. Get a Jesuits. Um, <laughs> But the reason why I bring that up is that he was in Haiti, Father Marino was in Haiti on a mission with a priest who had been there for a bit. And it was his first mission in Haiti. Okay. And there was a priest who had been there for a bit. And I cannot tell you why this topic was brought up in religion class. I have no fucking idea. So he's talking about going on this mission in Haiti and he's talking to this other priest and he goes, I mean, are zombies real? <gasps> Girl, I'm so pumped right now. <laughs> you don't even fucking know. And the priest goes, absolutely. <laughs> but they're not what you think they are. Okay. So we're going to talk about Haitian voodoo zombies. Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. I have dabbled in this topic, so I'm oh, shit. super pumped. Okay. Uh, but I have not done a deep dive, so. Okay. Hey. So Sources. Ranker, themarysue.com, duke.edu, history.com, wikipedia.com, the lancet, livescience.com, the atlantic, and harvard magazine. Also, in case you weren't paying attention to any of those sources, which is fair, I would just like to point out that at least half of them are like scientific medical journals. Just note that. Yeah, yeah. just note that. So this isn't like, I went down a Reddit rabbit hole, like, I'm, I'm pulling this shit. This last week, yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so let's fucking get into it. While zombie folklore has been around in Haiti for centuries, the ancient Greeks may have been the first civilization terrorized by a fear of the undead. Archaeologists have unearthed many ancient graves which contain skeletons pinned down by rocks <gasps> and other heavy objects assumedly to prevent the dead bodies from reanimating, which, what the I have fuck? never heard that. Right? What? That's what very fuck? upsetting, yeah. That's what it is. It's upsetting. Yeah. I'm upset by that. Yes. Imagine you fucking die of the plague or whatever the fuck, or you turn 16 and it's your time to fucking go. Yeah. Because it's ancient Greece. <laughs> That's all you lived in. <laughs> you know? And you're like, wow, she really made it. She was like basically a grandmother. She was an elder. She's 16. <laughs> And then they fucking bury you and they have to pin you down with rocks because I, they're like, this bitch is going to come back and kill all of us. I can't imagine like that being your family member and going to that funeral where they're like, well, hold on, we just got to roll the rock on them. You're like, wait, wait, uh, wait, why the rock? And like, just in case, just in case, don't worry. In case what? Like, <laughs> it's better to have it and not eat it than to eat it and not have it. <laughs> I didn't think we'd be doing a callback for that so soon, but that's amazing. That was perfect. <laughs> I get like one one a month. That was great. Thank you. I thought it was pretty good. Off the cuff. Um, There is some dispute as to where the word zombie comes from. Some theorize the term zombie is derived from the Congo word and zombie, which literally means spirit of a dead person. However, others say that it comes from the West African word jumbi, which means ghost. And of course, it's always possible that it's just an amalgamation of both. 
It is believed that zombie folklore originated in Haiti in the 17th century when the first slaves were brought over from West Africa by French colonialists to work in Haiti's sugarcane plantations. During the 17th and 18th centuries, the country was ruled by France and known as Saint-Dominique, and slavery in Saint-Dominique under the French was extremely brutal. Half of the slaves brought in from Africa were worked to death within a few years, which only led to the capture and import of more. Between 1780 and 1790, 370,000 African-born slaves were imported to Haiti. Holy shit. That's, if we're doing math, this is over the span of 10 years. This is 37,000 slaves a year. That's That's, insane. uh, Yes, it's insane and just horrifying and angering and i just don't know why we can't be cool but just <laughs> be cool people just fucking be cool and don't be a tip Seriously, it's really not it's that fucking not complicated the origins of the zombie archetype began as a manifestation of the anxieties brought on by slavery and was a projection of the african slaves relentless misery and subjugation and mirrored the inhumanity that existed there during the 17th and 18th centuries Haitian slaves believed that dying would release them back to Lan Guinea, which literally translates to Guinea, or Africa in general, a kind of afterlife where they could be free. Though suicide was common among the slaves, those who took their own lives wouldn't be allowed to return to Lan Guinea. Instead, they'd be condemned to skulk in Hispaniola plantations for all eternity. An undead slave who had been denied the autonomy of their own body while still being trapped inside of it, a.k.a. a soulless zombie. In 1791, the black population in Haiti launched one of the few successful slave revolts in history, forming secret societies and first overcoming the French plantation owners, and then a unit of troops from Napoleon's army that was sent over to squash the revolt. By the end of the Haitian Revolution in 1804, the black population had overthrown the French colonial government abolished slavery, and established modern Haiti. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. Damn straight. Fuck yes. For the next hundred years, Haiti was the only independent black republic in the Caribbean, populated by people who did not forget their African heritage. Ethnobiologist Wade Davis said, quote, you can almost argue that Haiti is more African than Africa. When the west coast of Africa was being disrupted by colonialism and the slave trade, Haiti was essentially left alone. The amalgam of beliefs in Haiti is unique, but it's very, very African. Interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. I would never have really thought about that. Yeah. And let me tell you, reading about that, I definitely felt like a trash person because I didn't know anything about the history of Haiti. And Haiti is... Growing up in Miami is was like right three, there, it's right there, yeah. and oh, so also I didn't mention that the high school that I went to was predominantly Cuban and Haitian. So Miami has a lot of Haitians in there because it's yeah. right fucking there. So the high school and I went to high school in Little Haiti in Miami. So the high school I went to was like basically fifty fifty Cuban and Haitian, and then a very small pocket of Filipinos. And then, like, American Anglo kids and, like, everything else was in, like, the very small percentage. But it was predominantly Haitian and Cuban. And you would think because of that I would have known any of this. And I didn't. And I feel like I told you. No, I I wouldn't. I mean, I... 
You know, I just think it, there's this whole enormous world out there that we know so little, little about. Of. Facts. And, and know, that's just culturally. That's not even like exactly. literally, yeah, in, exactly. the, in any other way you want to phrase that. Yes. Yeah. And I guess, it, you know, I, I definitely felt grateful to this podcast. Hey. Because uh, even though it's a very odd subject matter, that I was able to find out this information that otherwise I would have spent probably the rest of my life not knowing yeah fuck so yeah well there you go uh learning it's uh it never stops it never stops exactly after the haitian revolution the zombie became part of haiti's folklore with the myth evolving slightly and being embedded into the haitian voodoo religion so what's haitian voodoo i'm so glad you asked (laughs) it's like you read my mind monique i know that's our next episode. It's going to be on the ESP that we have. Yes! <laughs> Haitian voodoo is a syncretic religion that developed among Afro-Haitian communities amid the Atlantic slave trade of the 16th to 19th centuries. It arose through the blending of the traditional religions brought to the island of Hispaniola by enslaved West Africans and the Roman Catholic teachings of the French colonialists who controlled the island. After the Haitian Revolution the Roman Catholic Church left for several decades, allowing voodoo to become Haiti's dominant religion. In the 20th century, growing emigration spread voodoo abroad, and the late 20th century saw growing links between voodoo and related traditions in West Africa and the Americas, such as Cuban Santeria and Brazilian Candomblé. Many Haitians today practice voodoo to some extent, although they typically also practice Roman Catholicism, seeing no issue in pursuing the two religions simultaneously. Smaller voodooist communities exist elsewhere, especially among the Haitian population in the United States. Both in Haiti and abroad, voodoo has spread beyond its Afro-Haitian origins and is practiced by individuals of various ethnicities. Voodoo has faced much criticism throughout its history, having repeatedly been described as one of the world's most misunderstood religions. Many people who practice the voodoo religion today believe that zombies are myths, but there are Haitians who believe that zombies are very much real. And what they are, are corpses that have been reanimated by a voodoo priest who uses their bewitched undead as free labor or to carry out nefarious tasks. While the zombie myth has been widely appropriated by American pop culture as a form of escapist fantasy with the undead hunting for the brains of the living, in Haiti, the fear is not of zombies, but of becoming one. (gasps) Oh, you just gave me chills with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, that is scary. Yeah. We're going to get into it. In 1980, a man with a scar on his right cheek walked into Lestere. Oh, also... Don't let the fact that my name is Monique fool you. I don't know any French, and <laughs> and I'm real. I'm trying. The last name is Sanchez. Like that's Sanchez. What we're going, yeah, that's what we're going with. And I know that if any of my Haitian classmates listen to this, I'm going to get dragged. <laughs> Just be shaking their head the whole time. I'm so sorry. I looked up these pronunciations, and some of them were available, and some of them were not. I'm trying. I was like, you're trying your best. I'm trying That's my best. all we can ask. Yes. So uh, I just want to give Preface that little caveat. That, yeah. <laughs> in 1980, a man with a scar on his right cheek walked into Lestere, a village in central Haiti, and approached Angela Narcisse and identified himself as her brother, Clairvius. He introduced himself using his childhood nickname 
and brought up facts only intimate family members knew to prove it was him. Why did he have to prove his identity? Because 18 years earlier, on May 2nd, 1962, Clairvius died and Angelina attended the funeral in a small cemetery north of their village and watched her brother be buried. <gasps> 18 years ago? Yes. Holy fuck. That same year, two women turned up in their villages claiming that they too were zombies. And in northern Haiti, locals alleged that they had found a group of zombies wandering aimlessly in the <gasps> fields. I can't even imagine the legalities of, like, coming back as a zombie. Right? Yeah. Like, how do you reclaim your property? Like, you have a death certificate? Like, I don't even, I don't even want to imagine the bureaucratic hassle that goes into fucking being alive again after being a zombie. For sure. <laughs> I don't know why that's what I'm worried about, but yes. It's totally fair to be worried about it. <laughs> so, unlike the other cases that I just mentioned, Narcisse's case was different in one crucial aspect. It was documented. His death had been recorded by doctors at the American-directed Schweitzer Hospital in Deschapelles. Hospital records show that on April 30th, 1962, Narcisse walked into the hospital's emergency room spitting up blood. He was feverish and full of aches. His doctor could not diagnose his illness, and his symptoms steadily grew worse. Three days after he entered the hospital, he was pronounced dead with the attending physicians an American among them, <gasps> signing his death certificate. He said he remembered hearing his doctors pronounce him dead while his sister Angelina wept at his bedside. What? He recalled the doctors pulling a sheet over his face <gasps> before placing his body in cold storage for 20 hours, and then he was buried. Narcisse told his sister he remembers being lowered into his grave <gasps> and that while he could not speak or move, <gasps> he was fully Conscious. Oh my god, no. Worst no, 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 fucking no. nightmare. I know, like, my jaw has been dropped this whole time, and I'm, like, holding my chest. This is yes. so, this is so much now. And that oh. scar on his right cheek, he said it was caused by a nail being driven oh. through his casket. Monique, what? I know! This is fucking crazy! Oh my god, okay. The night he was buried, a voodoo priest raised him from his grave. <gasps> then he was beaten with a whip and carted off to a sugar plantation in northern Haiti where he was forced to work as a slave. After the zombie master's death two years later, they were able to escape. But Clairvius remained in hiding for an additional 16 years because he believed that his brother was the one who had sold him to the Boker Fuck. over a land dispute. It was only after his brother's death that he decided to return home. Oh, shit. Right? This poor guy. I mean... That's intense. Yeah. The process of zombification begins when a sorcerer known as a boker either selects a victim or has the victim selected for them. The boker then creates a zombie powder made from a variety of ingredients and administers it to its intended target. The administration can vary from ingestion to being rubbed onto the skin to injection to even a blow dart. Damn. That's old school. For sure. Within hours of contact with the powder, the victim will begin to feel nauseated and have difficulty breathing. A pins and needle sensation will afflict their arms and legs before progressing to the whole body. The subject then becomes paralyzed, with their heartbeat becoming incredibly faint, their breathing drastically reduced to the point that their lips turn blue from lack of oxygen, and their metabolism is lowered to a level almost indistinguishable from death. 
in as quickly as... This is literally like Romeo and Juliet show. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. In as quickly as six hours, the target enters a state of death-like paralysis in which they are still conscious. While in this death-resembling state, the victim is still fully aware of their surroundings but cannot express themselves. Once taken to the hospital and declared dead by the doctor, the seemingly lifeless body is buried in a grave soon after death since the heat and general lack of refrigeration in Haiti makes the bodies decay more rapidly, with the victim bearing witness to their own burial. Oh my god. This is like the shit that nightmares are made of. Yeah. Ugh. After the body is buried, the boker enters the grave and digs up the body. This happens within eight hours of the burial because... Otherwise, the victim will die of asphyxiation. Oh, shit. Okay. Because you also have to deal with, like, they're in a fucking they're, coffin. Yeah, they're being bar- yeah, buried alive, basically. Right. It is at this point the zombie ritual begins. In voodoo, it is believed that a person's soul is divided into two basic parts. The tibonange, or the little good angel, and the grobonange, the big good angel. Oh, I was like, the bad angel? Like, what's going on? Hey, hey bad like, girls. You get the, yeah. You get Talking the, about the sad girls. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you got the good part of the soul, then you got the naughty part. Like, yeah. hey. They're like, no, it's like a small good part or like a big good part. Like, there's right. only good parts. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like in like the Snickers commercial where there's like a good angel, like yeah. the, the angel on one <laughs> no. side and the devil on the other side. No. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a commercial. And I just that It up. sounded right. It sounded right. You, you know the trope I'm talking about. So the grobonange is responsible for a person's life force and their bodily functions, while the tibonange is responsible for a person's consciousness and identity. Okay. It is believed that the tibonange remains with the body for nine days after death, at which point it is released to face God and account for its sins. Meanwhile, the grobonange remains on earth where it haunts the places where its body lived until a proper burial ritual has been performed. Cool. Fun, fun, fun. You know, nice. good to know. The boker then performs a ritual where they capture the tibonange of the victim, which puts the grobonange and their body under the zombie master's control, who then keeps the tibonange in a small clay jar, wraps it in a piece of the victim's clothing, and stores it for safekeeping. A day or two later, the boker revives the now zombie using another powder mixture called quote-unquote, zombie cucumber. Yummy. (laughs) I don't fuck with a cucumber. Have we had this conversation? Yeah, you don't like a cucumber. I like a cucumber. I do not fuck with a cucumber. You don't like pickles either. No. And I found out not that long ago, they're the same fucking thing. (laughs) They are, yes. Miss that day. They are related, yes. Yep. They should just call it a pickled cucumber. Why the fuck is it a pickle? Whatever. This is not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're talking about zombie cucumbers Don't get us started on pickles. Don't get me fucking started. You heard my fucking rants about Winter Soldier. You do not want to go down the pickle road with me. It's, it's, it's two times Winter Soldier. Like, don't even go there. It's, I have feelings and thoughts. So he revives the now zombie with another powder mixture called zombie cucumber. This hallucinogenic concoction is used periodically to keep the victim in a state of submissive confusion. In this state, the zombie cannot speak, has no memory, and no longer resembles its past human personality. As a result, the boker can easily control the zombie and usually puts them to work farming and laboring. Only when the boker dies, or voluntarily relinquishes control, can the zombie finally return to their home village or burial place and die and finally 
rest in peace. While zombification seems at first to be a strictly physical experience, there is additionally a psychological aspect in the ritual. A psychological or cultural predisposition is imperative in order for the victims to become a zombie. After being buried alive, the victim's reawakening as a zombie follows a psychotic state. The victim is able to reconstruct their identity as a zombie due to a combination of the psychosis induced by the drugs, the psychological trauma of being buried alive, fucking obvi, yeah, and the strong beliefs of zombies in their culture. Interesting. Okay. This all contributes to the psychological aspect that controls the victim's perception, actions, and identity as a zombie. A major concern in Haitian folklore concerning zombies is the act of feeding salt to a zombie. While zombies are usually not particularly dangerous, giving them salt will return them to their senses and restore their personality. And once they're back to their normal selves, it's believed that they're just going to flip the fuck out. I was like, so you're telling me we could have solved the zombie apocalypse with like those stupid rock salt guns? That's what you're telling me? That's what you're telling me, Moni. That's that's what they're telling me. All right, everyone take note. Well, I don't know. No, maybe. Here's the thing. Okay. okay. So break so it down for us. They're going to freak the fuck out. Yep. And the previous zombie who's now been restored will be compelled to promptly kill the boker. Oh, okay. Who enslaved them. Yeah, I would too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't have a problem with this. Fuck you. And once their revenge is complete, they will return to their place of burial to enjoy their final death. See, you know, and it's interesting to me that it's the verbiage of this is that it's concerning. And I'm like, it should only be concerning for the motherfucker who did this to them. Yeah, right? I don't have a problem. I'm I'm not turning anyone into a zombie. Yeah, this does not affect me in any way, shape, or form. For sure. And I'm not falling on the side of the, the zombie creators here, so. Yeah, no, I'm not siding the with The slave them. master. Yeah, so no, literally. You want to kill him? Go to fucking town. Yeah, no judgment Let's get that, that Morton Salt girl in this <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Although most outsiders dismissed the zombie phenomenon as folklore, some early investigators convinced of its reality tried to find a scientific explanation. Dr. Lamarck Duyon a Haitian-born Canadian-trained psychiatrist at the Centre de Psychiatrique et Neurologie in Port-au-Prince, had been investigating all reports of zombies since 1961. He was convinced that zombies were real, but he hadn't been able to find a scientific explanation for the phenomenon. While he didn't believe that zombies were people raised from the dead, he speculated that victims were only made to look dead, probably by means of a drug that dramatically slowed their metabolism. The victim was buried, dug up within a few hours, and somehow reawakened. Narcisse's case provided Duyon with evidence strong enough to warrant a request for assistance from colleagues in New York. Damn, all right. Like, this is... That's legit. You know it's legit in New York. Come on. I mean, yeah. I mean, But <laughs> people are actually studying this. This isn't just like... And this is a psychiatrist. This is somebody who went to medical school. Yes. This is, I, I need to make this very clear. I'm like, this isn't this just, is not like just like an old wives tale yeah, thing. Yeah, no. And it's not just like Billy Bob who decided to go to right. Haiti and fucking investigate this. Like, no. Right. Exactly. Duyon wanted to find an ethnobotanist, a traditional medicines expert who could track down the zombie potion he was certain existed. Aware of the medical potential of a drug that could dramatically lower metabolism, a group organized by the late Dr. Nathan Klein, a New York psychiatrist and pioneer in the field of psychopharmacology, raised the funds necessary to send someone to investigate. 
The search for that someone led them to the director of the Harvard Botanical Museum, one of the world's foremost institutes of ethnobiology, Richard Evans Schultz. While Schultz would have been a natural for this Haitian investigation, didn't expect that to rhyme. <laughs> this happened to you last time. It did happen yeah. to me. You know, it's that thing of when you like type things out and they just don't sound the same out loud. Yes. Yeah. That's very true. Haitian investigation. I love it. Right? That's a, that sounds like a good show. Somebody pitch that to somebody. Guys. Yeah. Get yes. on that. Let's, I'd let's, watch that. 10,000 fucking percent. Yes. It's a paranormal if, investigation show, obviously. Like, obviously. Yeah. Dude, if Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi <laughs> have a fucking show, right? we can have a Haitian investigation. Fuck yes. Just fucking sick. I can already hear the theme song. Like, it's great. Yes. <laughs> so they hit up Richard Schultz to be like, yo, you want to do this? And he's like, I'm too busy. Oh, all right. But he recommends another Harvard ethnobotanist for the assignment, 28-year-old Wade Davis. So Davis went down to Haiti to find out what the fuck was going on, but more specifically, what was in that zombie powder. Yeah. Davis theorized that it was the use of some kind of chemical that resulted in Narcisse's apparent resurrection and disoriented state and went in search of a boker who would let him observe the creation of the zombie powder, which Davis came to believe was the chief agent responsible for the phenomenon. Within a few weeks, Davis had obtained several samples from several different bokers. During the zombification ritual, a boker used a complex powder made from a variety of ingredients, usually including parts of toads, sea worms, lizards, tarantulas, oh, human bones. No, this doesn't sound good. Mm -mm. Which the young ethnobotanist obtained with a boker after unearthing a child's grave on a midnight trip to the cemetery, <gasps> which... That's a fucking no, no from me, dog. No, I'm good. No. Get the fuck out of there. No fucking way. No. And a species of pufferfish. The inclusion of the pufferfish is particularly important because it produces a deadly neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin. This toxin creates paralysis and death, and victims usually remain conscious right up until the moment of their death. There have been documented cases where people have ingested tetrodotoxin, appeared dead, but went on to make a full recovery. Used carefully at sublethal doses, the tetrodotoxin combination may cause zombie-like symptoms such as difficulty walking, mental confusion, and respiratory problems. High doses of tetrodotoxin, however, can lead to paralysis and coma and even death. After witnessing several bokers, Davis discovered that making the poison was an inexact science, and while no two zombie powders were the same in the five samples he eventually acquired, the active agents were always the same with the tetrodotoxin turning up in every sample of the zombie powder that Davis acquired. All right. All right, we're getting somewhere. Okay. The poison came with no guarantee, because again, it's an inexact science. Sometimes, instead of merely paralyzing the victim, the compound would kill them. Other times, the victim would suffocate in their coffin before they could be rescued. What is known is that the potion works well enough to make zombies more than a figment of Haitian imagination. Numerous well-documented accounts of pufferfish poisoning exist, but the most famous accounts come from Japan, where fugu fish, a species of puffer, is considered a delicacy. In Japan, special chefs are licensed to prepare fugu, the chef removes enough poison to make the fish non-lethal, yet enough remains to create exhilarating physiological effects. 
Interesting. Tingling up and down the spine, mild prickling of the tongue and lips, (gasps) euphoria. However, several dozen Japanese die every year, having bitten off more than they should have. So if you're in Japan, skip on that all-you-can-eat sushi buffet. I love that play on words there. Hey. What? Bitten off more than they can chew. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) She's so clever, you guys. Look at that. Didn't even realize (laughs) I loved it. I realized. It was like two in the morning. (laughs) Delirious. In a beautiful way. I love it. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Case histories of fugu poisoning read like accounts of zombification. Victims remained conscious but unable to speak or move. A man who had quote-unquote died after eating fugu recovered seven days later in the morgue. Oh! Can you imagine? No. Oh my God. I, that's one of those like, do you just like panic and run out? Do you like try to get the, mor- the mortician? I don't even know what you would call them. The morgue worker? It, it depends. The head of the I morgue? found out that it depends on the state. It, they're called different things. Okay. Because it's different licenses. Yeah. But um, like, would you try to let somebody be like, hi, yeah, I'm not dead. Hi. Or would you just be like, ah, nobody's going to believe me. I have to get the fuck out of here right now. I mean... I don't even know. I, I would think I was a ghost. I feel like I think I was a ghost. Yeah. I'm like, okay, fuck, I'm dead. I wouldn't even, I don't think I'd process I was still alive. Uh, oh my God. I would freak the fuck out. Yeah. You bet your fucking ass of on that. Of course. I don't think there's a calm way to wake up in the morgue. If anybody's waking up in the morgue, like, oh, so relaxing. I'm so I well rested. I feel like the like, only person would be fucking, what the fuck was his name? Mike? Iron Mike. Oh. Yeah, from that episode. Mike uh, Malloy? Is that what Malloy. his last name was? Malloy. Look at you. Was? Michael Malloy. Hey! Look at you. See? I do remember my Mandela effects. Come on, people. God damn. Steel trap up here. Let's God do damn this. right. Uh, he'd be down to wake up anywhere. Yeah, he'd be fine. <laughs> some fucking He'd be like, yeah, you some formaldehyde? Like, pour it in a glass. Let's do this. Let's do it. I've been drinking Chase antifreeze it. all fucking Chase it with the antifreeze. Week. Yeah. Another Japanese man who was poisoned by fugu revived after he was nailed into his coffin. Oh. Which, can you imagine? And I know people have no. done pranks of this, like prank shows have done this. Can you imagine you're at a funeral <gasps> and then you just start hearing screams from inside the coffin or like banging from inside the coffin? Like, I'm done. I'm out the door. I'm out the door. I'm traumatized for the rest of my life. Yes. I'm going to start screaming and never stop. Yes. There's no other option. No. Oh my I don't God. even, I just have to witness this. I don't even have to be the one in the coffin for that to no. be my emotional response. I don't, yeah. I don't even want to imagine it being like somebody you know to where you're just like, uh. No. No, thank you. Davis said, quote, all of Narcissus symptoms correlated. Even strange things, such as the fact that he said he was conscious and could hear himself pronounced dead. Stuff that I thought had to be magic that seemed crazy. But in fact, this is what people who get fugu fish poisoning experience. End quote. Davis was certain that he had solved the mystery, but that was far from the end of his investigation. And in fact, it was only the starting point. Davis said, quote, The drug alone didn't make zombies. Japanese victims of puffer fish poisoning don't become zombies. They become poison victims. End quote. So, okay. what the fuck is this? Yeah. From studying the medical literature on tritototoxin poisoning, Davis discovered that if a victim survives the first few hours of poisoning, they're likely to make a full recovery. Okay, good to know. The subject simply revives spontaneously. <laughs> That's kind of terrifying. Can yeah, you I don't fucking imagine. No, I can't, I get it. This is all my fucking worst <laughs> no. nightmare. Oh my god. 
But zombies remain without will in a trance-like state, a condition voodooists attribute to the power of the priest. Davis hypothesized that the psychological trauma of zombification may be augmented by a drug, possibly Datura, which is also known as zombie cucumber. Okay. Davis believed that zombies may be fed a Datura paste that accentuates their disorientation. Still, he puts the material basis of zombification in perspective. He says, quote, Tetrodotoxin and Datura are only templates in which cultural forces and beliefs may be amplified a thousand times, end quote. Let me clarify what he means by that. While gathering poisons from various parts of the country, Davis had come into direct contact with the voodoo secret societies who traced their origins to the bands of escaped slaves that organized the revolt against the French in the late 18th century. These groups, which met at night and were open to both men and women, fuck yeah, smash a picture, yeah. controlled specific territories of the country. These secret societies are responsible for policing their communities, and the threat of zombification is one way they maintain order. Okay, all right, yeah. To the uninitiated, the practice may appear like random criminal activity, but in rural voodoo society, it is the exact opposite. It's a sanction imposed by recognized authorities as a form of capital punishment. Oh, Fuck! Right? I'm, like, kind of okay with this as a punishment. I mean, yeah. I I mean, not for everybody. Just, like, you know, like, really bad cases. For instance, Davis discovered that Clairvius Narcisse and a woman he had interviewed who had also claimed to have been a zombie were village pariahs. Oh, shit. The woman was regarded as a thief, and Narcisse had abandoned his children and deprived his brother of land that was rightfully his. And Narcisse alleged that the brother had sold him to the boker as retribution. Damn, all right. Right? Well, so don't it's fuck like, him over, yeah. It's like, well, you done fucked up, so you gotta pay the price. Yeah. Those crimes were, for zombification to be the punishment, were a little light. Yeah. I was thinking it was more like murder. For sure. Like, you know. Yeah, exactly. The, anything else? Disproportionate yeah. response. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. For sure. For rural Haitians, zombification is an even more severe punishment than death because it deprives the subject of its most valued possession, their free will and their independence. Ooh, yeah. Right? Wade Davis took his findings and later went on to write the book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was later adapted and made into the 1988 horror film of the same name, directed by Wes Craven and starring Bill Pullman, if you've ever seen it. I don't think I've ever actually seen that. Oh, it's it's very much an 80s horror film. Okay. And it's very... Culturally insensitive. Oh, I'm yeah. Go for yeah, it. I would assume. It's the 80s. Based on that time period. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's the I don't 80s. think it's going to be super PC. So. Definitely no. not. No, no, no. Um, it's something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. For a while, Davis was widely touted as the man who had scientifically solved the mystery of zombies. However, Davis's claims were later challenged by skeptical scientists who regarded his methods as unscientific pointing out that the samples of the zombie powder he provided were inconsistent, which, I mean... everyone made their own different recipe. They made their own thing, yes. which, I mean, I fucking get it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, could I get a fucking cookbook? Yeah, and I'm sure, like, 
based on who you're giving it to, like, am I giving it to a guy who's six three and sure. you know two hundred fifty pounds, or am I giving it to a five foot one girl and who weighs a hundred pounds? Yeah, like, and I think maybe also you add a little more though, a little more like less. maybe depending on what region you're in, your your access to things is different. Yeah, that makes sense. There's or like also, what season? I don't know if there's like a growing for sure. season for whatever they're putting in this. Yeah, yeah, you know, so they're like it's inconsistent, you know, which. Okay. I understand. Like, yeah. The, as long as the testing is consistent. Right. They also said that the amounts of neurotoxin contained in those samples was not high enough to create zombies. Furthermore... Then bitch, where'd all these zombies come from? That's what the fuck I'm saying! Like, what the fuck? Okay. <sighs> Furthermore, the dosages used by the bokers would need to be exact since too much of the toxin could easily kill a person. They did it all the time. Yeah. And also, like... You just did the people because they were already dead. Buried. Yeah. Like, so... Okay. Yeah, whatever. I'm just explaining the scientific shit here. She's just giving you all the sides. I'm giving you all the sides so that you can make your decision. Others also pointed out that nobody had ever found any of the many supposed plantations filled with zombie laborers on the small island country. Yeah, because they just look like other laborers. So, like, what? You're you're interviewing all of these plantation workers to determine which ones have free will and which ones don't? Right. They're not wearing a name tag that says, hello, my name is Zombie. Yeah, and they're not, you know, zombies from movies and TVs. They're not, yeah, we're not falling apart at the seams with our jaw hanging off. Like, they look like everyone else. They just don't have free will. On a fucking sugar cane Cane plantation. Yeah. Yeah. In his second book, Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie, Davis acknowledged problems with his theories and refuted some of the more sensational claims attributed to him. Still, he insisted the Haitian belief in zombies could be based on the admittedly rare cases where a person was poisoned by tetrodotoxin and later revived inside the coffin and taken from the grave. Furthermore, he added... There was much more to the zombie phenomenon than simply the powder. It was only one part of a deeply rooted, reinforced sociocultural belief in the power of witchcraft. Yeah. In 1997, 10 years after Wade Davis's trip to Haiti to study the Haitian voodoo zombies and the release of the serpent and the rainbow, the English medical journal The Lancet published a set of case studies detailing three reports of zombification in Haiti. Again, that's a legitimate publication. I'm going to remind everyone, The Lancet is a legit as fuck medical journal, and this shit is fucking wild. Yeah, no joke. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) And this is in 1997. (laughs) Like, this is blowing It's not that long ago, yeah. They're writing medical journals about Zombies. zombies. The study titled Clinical Findings in Three Cases of Zombification begins by stating that, and you're not fucking ready for this, The United Nations has been concerned with zombification for quite some time, comparing it to the AIDS epidemic. Uh, What? Like, this is how severe? Apparently, the United Nations was like, this is is on par. And, like, this zombie phenomena could become the next AIDS epidemic. My jaw is on the ground. Like, what? This is in a medical journal. Oh my god, okay. From 1997. Holy shit, Wild. Also turns out, the act of turning someone into a zombie using voodoo, quote-unquote, 
is classified as a crime under Haitian Penal Code, Article 246. Oh, fuck. Okay. So they're not fucking around here. Yeah, this is on the books. Yes. Here's the text from the Haitian Penal Code translated from the Creole. Article 246. If qualified poison, any attempt on the life of a person, the effect of substances that can cause death more or less quickly in any way that these substances have been used or administered, and whatever were the sweets, is also called the attack on a person's life by poisoning. The use made against him without substances to kill have produced a lethargic state, more or less, prolonged in any way that these substances have been employed and whatever were the consequences. If, as a result of this lethargy, the person was buried, the attack will be called murder. Oh! So if you're turned into a zombie and you're buried, that is a murder charge. Fuck! In Haiti. Oh, shit. Fucking That's wild. wild. It's in the books. It's wild. I kind of love that it's in the books. Go Haiti. I mean, yeah. yeah. For sure. Okay. I'm, I'm totally there with you I'm on that. I'm in it, yes. It's fucking wild. So here are three case studies the researchers observed in southern Haiti between 1996 and 1997 with subjects who claim to have been zombified, and the subjects are only identified by their initials. And I'm just going to directly read the case yeah, studies. Yeah, of course. F.I. was around 30 years old when she died after a short febrile, which means fever, illness, and was buried by her family the same day in the family tomb next to their house. Three years later, she was recognized by a friend wandering near the village. Her mother confirmed her identity by a facial mark, as did her seven-year-old daughter, her siblings, other villagers, her husband, and the local priest. Chills. I mean... Can you imagine? I can't imagine. That's, I can't imagine. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. And like, it seems like it's obviously a very distinctive mark. And if you've known anybody who like had a birthmark on their face, like, you know, you know them, you recognize them. And you know, this isn't like fucking San Francisco. These are small villages. Villages, like where you know everybody. Everyone knows everybody. Oh my God. She appeared mute and unable to feed herself. Her parents accused her husband of zombifying her. He was jealous of her after she had had an affair. After a local court authorized the opening of her tomb, which was full of stones. <gasps> what? Her parents were undecided whether to take her home, and she was admitted to the psychiatric hospital in Port-au-Prince. So that's case number one. Okay, shit. Case number two. W.D. Right? I like to think it's... Oh, what? sorry. What'd you say? That was a hardware joke. I'm, no. I said 40 because it's W.D. I was going to say Walt Disney. Oh. That's right. Get your squeaky hinges done. (laughs) WD-40 or Walt Disney. (laughs) Whichever you prefer. Your choice. 26 years old, was the eldest son of an alleged former Tauntaun Mako or secret policeman under the Duvalier regime. The father was our principal informant together with WD's mother and other villagers. When he was 18, he suddenly became ill with a fever. Quote, his eyes turned yellow, end quote, end quote, he smelled like death. Oh, and Jesus, okay. his body swelled up. Oh, yeah. End quote. Suspecting sorcery, his father asked his older brother to obtain advice from the boker or sorcerer. But W.D. died after three days and was buried in a tomb on family land next to the house of a female cousin. The tomb was not, as was customary, watched that night. 
19 months later, W.D. reappeared at a nearby cockfight, recognized his father, and accused his uncle of zombifying him. Damn. That's a hell of a cockfight. Right? Case number three. M.M., aged 31, was the younger sister of our principal informant, who described her as a formerly friendly but quiet and shy girl, not very bright, which, fuck, savage. Yeah. At the age of 18, M.M. had joined some friends in prayers for a neighbor who had been zombified. She herself then became ill with diarrhea and fever, her body swelled up, and she died in a few days. The family suspected revenge sorcery. After 13 years, M.M. had reappeared in the town market two months before we had met her, born a child to another zombie, or perhaps to the boker, and on the death of the boker, his son had released her and she traveled home on foot. Researchers diagnosed the first patient with catatonic schizophrenia, the second with epilepsy and, quote, organic brain syndrome, end quote, or brain damage, presumably from oxygen deprivation, and the third with potential fetal alcohol syndrome. To make matters even weirder, DNA testing revealed that the second and third patients were cases of mistaken identity. Oh, shit. These researchers posited that reported cases of zombification have less to do with mind-controlling neurotoxins and more to do with untreated or undiagnosed mental illness and brain disorders. But when there's voodoo at hand, it's just easier to blame someone else for committing evil sorcery. Fun side fact, in George A. Romero's 1968 horror classic, Night of the Living Dead, the creatures are never actually referred to as zombies. I had heard that, yes. In the original script, writer-director George A. Romero refers to his flesh-eating antagonists as ghouls, although the film is widely credited with launching zombies into the cultural zeitgeist, it wasn't until its follow-up, Dawn of the Dead, ten years later, that Romero would actually use the term. The reason why Romero shied away from using the word is because he understood zombies to be undead Haitian slaves, as depicted in the 1932 Bela Lugosi horror film, White Zombie. Oh, shit! Yeah. Which is where Rob Zombie got his band name from? Question mark? Oh, I don't know. That would make sense, though. I would assume, yeah. One would be wrong to assume that zombies are a common occurrence in the voodoo religion, as many voodoo practitioners don't even believe that zombies are literally real, but simply just folktales or metaphors. However, others remain steadfast in their belief that zombies do exist and actively fear being turned into one. The Haitian kids I went to school with were taught to never eat anything at another person's house. Wow. Yep. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yep. And while they would never tell you flat out, I'm not going to eat at your house. I'm not going to eat food at your house because I think that you or someone else might have poisoned me and it's going to turn me into a zombie, they would always politely decline it. That's fascinating. Yep. And it could be because of stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, or maybe they were more convinced because they had seen a zombie with their own eyes. In the same religion class that I brought up at the beginning of the story, which again, I have no fucking idea why we were talking about this. <laughs> One of the Haitian students raised his hand and shared that 
A couple years earlier, his cousin in Haiti had died, so he and his family had flown to the island for the funeral. They held the funeral, attended the burial, and headed back to his aunt's house to comfort the bereaved mother over the loss of her son. Later that evening, his aunt went into the kitchen to grab something when they all heard her start screaming. At the back door that led to the kitchen was her dead son. (gasps) Alive, but not exactly well. You guessed it. He had been turned into a zombie. Holy fuck, dude. Now, you can attribute as much salt as you'd like to that story or any of the ones that I mentioned here today. But what I know is that that kid absolutely believed what he saw. And you better believe that he won't be coming over to your house for dinner anytime soon. Fuck no. And that (gasps) is the crazy story of Haitian voodoo zombies. Holy fuck, dude. That was so good. Very well done. Thank you. I'm torn now. What do you mean? Of what, what it is? Well, yeah, because they kind of like, like, in the case studies, yeah, they kind of just like dismissed all the case studies as bullshit. And like, I was familiar with the serpent and the rainbow. Yeah. But I had read all of the like critiques of it. Mm -hmm. But man, like, I love the like anecdotes like that. The people who believe it are the people who like actually live that every day. Yeah. And it was, it was a thing that, again, because I went to school in Little Haiti and because my school was like 50-50 Cuban Haitian. It was that thing that you always knew that like the it didn't matter how how tight you were with with any of the Haitian kids, they were never going to eat anything in your house. And they That's never so really crazy. told you why. Yeah. Until this random class came up huh. where we started talking about it. It was like, yeah, that's why we don't fucking eat at anyone's house. And I remember I remember Wild. him saying like everyone can eat the same thing, but you will be the only one affected by it. <gasps> Because they believe. They Whereas believe everyone it. else is like, that's not going to happen to me. Zombies aren't real. Yeah. And that's the thing that oh, they were shit. talking, that, that I brought up, that it's not just the poison. It's, do you believe this? Okay. And believing it, you basically... Allow it to Allow it to happen. Of? And you, you um, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, for sure. It's it's like a, what was that? It was okay. It was, it was a better than average horror movie that came out in the early aughts. The skeleton key? I don't... That sounds very familiar. It was Kate Hudson. I was going to say, I feel like Kate Hudson's in it, so I feel like I saw it, but I can't tell you anything about it. I'm also pretty certain it takes place in New Orleans, or at least Louisiana. Okay. And has to do with voodoo. If you haven't seen it, and you care to, I'm going to spoiler alert the ending. So just fast forward. spoil it to me. Fast forward 15, 30 seconds. Basically, they do voodoo on her for the, the finale, but they tell her the only way it works is when you believe. And the entire movie is trying to get her to believe it. And by the end of it, she does. And it's like, we got, got you. you. Oh, shit. So it's so there is a, a huge psychological aspect to all of this. Of They really believe. like There are people who really do believe that this is real. And this can happen to you. And if it does happen to you, it's not just a poisoning. It's like, oh my god, this happened to me. I heard myself be buried. I'm turning into a zombie. I'm a zombie now. And, and then you kind of fall in line with it. Yeah. Yeah. That is deeply fascinating to me. Right. I loved that. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. It's funny because I, by the time this airs, I will have gone to New Orleans. Yeah. And I was like, let's do some cool New Orleans shit. 
Fuck yeah. And and I was like, let's do some voodoo thing. And then I just randomly got this sense memory of the zombies, the Haitian zombies in my religion class. And I was like, let's look into this. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we vaguely talked about it maybe when we first met. I don't know if you remember that. We covered so many things. We covered so many things, but I have a very, <laughs> a very clear memory of us looking at each other and being like, I mean, but zombies are real. Like... <laughs> They're real. Like we, yeah. I, and then we like talked about the fact that we both were familiar with the serpent yeah. and the rainbow. Yes. I mean, that totally tracks. Yes. And I'm, well, I'm not remembering that memory. I don't doubt it happened. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we both had a zombies are real moment together. Because I'm certain I've never had that conversation with literally anyone else. <laughs> Probably not, no. Because I try to keep was me. my was weirdness just above the surface. Like that it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. mildly socially acceptable. And I could like bring it up when I need it. Yeah. Whereas with you, I'm like, yay, I finally found my person. Yes. It's like, come join me. One of us. One of us. Oh, I love that so much. I'm so glad. Now I want to watch all of my favorite zombie movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's your favorite. Oh, fuck. I, my default one was going to be- Killing Murphy, sh- right? Killing what? Killing Murphy in 28 Days Later? <gasps> Ooh, she knows me better than I know myself <laughs> because I was going to say, technically, is that really a zombie movie? They don't actually die. They are just infected with a... Rage. Yes, Ugh. infected with rage, which I know you hate. I know. <laughs> uh, I was going to say Shaun of the Dead was my go-to, mm, weirdly, just because I love Simon Pegg and I love that movie. I mean, that's, um, those are totally legitimate reason yes but if we are considering 20 days later a zombie movie that is actually monique is correct that's actually my favorite i was obsessed mm. with it in high school and i've i've seen it probably like 40 times at least and she's basically dating her boyfriend because he he looks, he, he looks kind like of like killing Murphy. Murphy. yeah it definitely i it's not the reason i'm dating him but it definitely didn't hurt <laughs> it helped it definitely lot. helped <laughs> when i was like you know who you look like killing murphy yeah yeah I'm hoping he uh, ends up being equally useful in a zombie apocalypse, so we'll see. I mean, not me. No. I'm going in head first. <laughs> head first is yes! my thing. <laughs> yes. I love that so much. I really loved the Dawn of the Dead remake. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I think we've talked about it on here before. Like, yeah. Steve, uh, Ty Burrell's character Ty Burrell. makes that movie. And especially that he's Phil Dumphy now. I know. And you're like, oh my I god, know. you're so gross. And the Dawn of the Dead. I'm, I hate you. Yeah, I you're like you. such a dick and I want to punch um, you in the face. But, but like, no. Acting. Typecast. Typecast. There you go. Um, what a range. Uh, what a range. Yeah. I remember going, I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast, but I remember going to see the Dawn of the Dead remake at like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday at a mall. And I was so free. And I don't get freaked out really by anything. Like, it, it takes a lot to freak me out. Yeah. Which, incidentally, I had a lot of zombie nightmares while working really? on the story. Really? Oh, no. I, I like also that. don't... That also doesn't happen yeah. to me either. But I had, like, three nights of zombie nightmares. Monique. It's all good. It's... This is, this is what I do, do for yeah. you guys. <laughs> I hope you appreciate it. Sacrificing for mental health. <laughs> but I remember getting super freaked out by that movie. I mean, And fair. it's... I mean, yeah. But I go out, and it's broad daylight... And I'm like freaked out to cross the parking lot. To <laughs> They're get gonna come to out from bus. between the cars. Yeah. Nope. And there was like four cars in the parking lot, and it's broad daylight. And I remember nope. being like, I don't like this. <laughs> Very. It's too quiet. Sketchy as fuck. I don't like. No. This. I don't blame you. Yeah. 
Uh, I, lo- I I think I think that's my favorite zombie movie. That's I I accept that as an answer. That's a good answer. Okay. I mean, the George Romero's are all good, but it's very hard to make a great remake that is something entirely of its own and respects the original. That's very true. And I feel and that does a good job. Donna, of it. Yeah, Donald right. Duck did a great job of that. You're totally right. Well, thank you again. Of course. Fuck, that was great. I'm so glad. Especially you're the chemist, so you... I love it. And you, you know, fucking nailed that. I I'm not even going to try to say it. That I'm toxin. glad I don't have to say it again. There you go. It was a struggle. No. No more. <sighs> Down with it. Do you have some crime? A little crime, crime time. for you. Crime time. Hey, girl. All right, let's do this. Get some crime time, baby. Crime time. Okay. So when I did my Mark and John story, that came from the book Stalkers, mm-hmm. True Tales of Deadly Obsessions by Eileen Ormsby. And there was another story in there that stuck out to me. So I am doing the story of Richard Britton. And that's my only source. Okay. I'm going I'm going streamlined today. Cool. I like it. I thought it did a really good job. I pulled up a few articles about it and most of them referenced the book anyway. The book anyway. So I was like, you know what? Go to the source. Suck it. I'm just gonna go straight straight to it. So Richard Britton of Bedford, England was just 21 years old when he won the incredibly popular British game show Countdown, which tests contestants on their quick thinking, English and math, or if you're from the UK, maths abilities. If you are familiar with the show The IT Crowd, which is one of my favorite shows, mm. which has the lovely Matt, Matt Berry, Berry from uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Yes. Laszlo. Um, Laszlo, yes. Mm. Hysterical show. If you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. Stars Chris O'Dowd and Richard Iowade. And Richard Iowade's character, Moss, competes on the show oh. in the series. And it's very funny. That's really my point of reference. I've There's also a, a spinoff show. Eight out of ten cats do countdown, and it's kind of a more informal version of the show. I'm sorry, what? Eight out of ten cats do countdown is what it's called. I don't know where the name. Okay, is. I mean, great. Sure. sure, Jimmy Carr is the host. It's I just very wanted funny. to make sure I understood what you said to me. Yes, because <laughs> that's what I heard, and I was like, wait, that's not right. Eight out of ten cats. <laughs> yes. So I've seen that version, which is like the little spinoff show of Countdown, but I've never seen actual Countdown. Basically, it's a British game show where I think it's two main games where one is a math game. You're given a bunch of numbers and you have to get a target number by filling in like addition, multiplication, subtraction things to get to this. Do people enjoy watching this? Oh, yes. Bridget used to make me play it, actually. I love the word portion because I'm super good at that. I can do the rearranged letters to find the longest word. I'm good at that. I don't like the math one, personally. Again, not not a game person. Not a big game person, yeah. Honestly, it's a big deal to be on the show, especially like if you're from England where it airs at any age. But for someone so young, like he was only 21 years old, it was extra impressive. And Richard didn't just win one episode. In 2006, he was crowned the Series 55 champion. Like all the winners before him, Richard was an intelligent, quick thinker, skilled at both maths and English. Richard won after winning all eight of his Heat games, making him one of the show's coveted quote-unquote, octo-champs. When he won, he told them he was delighted and hoped it would help him get into Cambridge. His prizes for winning were a 20-volume dictionary and the ostentatious Richard Whiteley Memorial Trophy, which he kept proudly displayed in his room next to a framed photo of him with the show's presenters, Des Lynam and Carol Vorderman. I'm sorry, you got a fucking dictionary? Girl, usually... (laughs) 
Where's the fucking cash, baby? It's a British game show, which a lot of the time, no offense, their, their prizes are a little ridiculous. Like, in the Great British Bake Off, which I absolutely love that show. It's my favorite baking show ever. They win a cake platter. They don't win money. They literally just win a nice glass cake platter. Sweetheart, go to Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> There's a 20% off coupon that you have 72 of in the fucking mail right now. <laughs> so I had to look it up because from my understanding on Countdown, they actually usually win a teapot, which is more ridiculous. And that is true. I guess he won the 20 dictionary thing because he won all the like octo champs. Yeah. But usually they win like a teapot with a clock on it that says countdown champion or countdown winner. My fucking face. <laughs> Monique right is now. like, what the actual fuck? As if being subjected to a game wasn't terrible enough. My coveted prize is a fucking is teapot, a teapot with a clock yes. on it. And if I really nail it, a dictionary. <laughs> 20 bitch, volumes. Please. Guess what? I have a billion volumes because I have a phone. A phone, exactly. I'm sorry, continue. I just can't. <laughs> this is not a, a reality. The British love tea, so a teapot is probably a great prize for them. Despite his countdown win and the minor fame that came along with it, he didn't get along with people very well, which he blamed on the fact that he was just so much smarter than everyone else. Oh, I know. He also had trouble keeping a job saying, quote, I'm quite good at getting jobs, but not at staying in them, end quote. And he never stayed in a job more than two months. Oh, fuck. I know, right? I mean, because like, I was like, I get it. It's especially if you're a smart like, person, you're probably going to work for people who are much dumber than you. Yeah. And even if you're not that smart, the odds of you working for someone dumber than you Pretty good. are exceedingly high. Yeah. So I get it. Two months though. Fuck. Yeah, come on. You can't keep it together for a fucking a half year? a year, a year. Even six months. Yeah, I was going to say. Come on. No. Okay. Red flag. <sighs> yep. He would often butt heads with his employers, again, claiming this was because he was just so much more intelligent than them, and as a result, his work history was sporadic and rarely resulted in him getting a reference from his employers. <laughs> not surprisingly. Dude. I but, mean, I get it. I'm not diplomatic yeah. at all. It's really, I get it. But fuck, like, he's making me look like fucking Dale Carnegie. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is really bad. But despite his employment troubles, he felt validated by his countdown win, as it proved his superior intellect. Ugh. He also enjoyed the minor fame that the title of champion came with, and for the first time in his life, people recognized him and wanted to talk to him. Mm. He felt as though people finally respected him. In January 2007, less than a month after winning Countdown, he went on another game show called Brain Teaser, which was not as prestigious as Countdown, but did have a 1,500-pound prize, which he won when he competed. Great. Right? Right? There you go. Better, some shit. better than a teapot. He can buy a teapot. Yeah, you can buy so many teapots How many teapots can you buy with 1,500 pounds? Probably like 100 at least, I would imagine. I, would I don't know how much a teapot runs in the UK, but yeah. I would assume. Now, Richard was the type of guy that was obsessed with his wins and would immediately bring it up to anyone oh, he met, God. going into quote-unquote, minute detail about his intellectual prowess to near strangers. Audible eye roll. I know. Sounds super fun to hang out with, right? Mm -hmm. He also made a YouTube video for his fans surrounded by show memorabilia where he talked about his experience on the show. In the video, he even cheekily said that he was not going to get into the rumors of him and Carol's dressing room encounters, then winked at the camera, which was just bullshit sad boy posturing. Like, literally yeah. nothing happened between him and Carol. That's ridiculous. Carol's probably like, who are you talking about? Literally. To the point that her agent even went so far as to make a public statement saying the suggestions were ludicrous. Oh my god. Which, that is my favorite word that British people use to ludicrous. describe things. Ludicrous. 
to me, it's it's a tainted word. To me, ludicrous, ludicrous is, is Luda. Luda. Yeah, that's fair too. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Richard, obsessed with mentions of him and his win online, was constantly checking on his fame and interacting with his quote-unquote fans. Ugh. Except, yeah, to be honest, most fans of the show didn't care for him as a contestant. People commented saying he wasn't personable on the show and yeah. called him boring. Yeah. They said he was a disappointment and a quote-unquote misery guts, <gasps> which is an unhappy person who is constantly complaining. Damn. I know. British fucking... They're savage. Yeah. They don't fuck around. Yeah. But Richard wasn't the type to just let these less intelligent people disparage him. So he starts defending himself online and responding to every less than complimentary comment. Oh my fuck. Which, dude, no. No. Like, don't fucking do that. No. He would dominate the discussion and continuously badger his opponent till he got an apology. After his countdown win, he felt confident enough to apply to Cambridge. He was accepted, but despite his confidence in his IQ, he was nervous about his social skills. He considered them improved, but he wasn't sure that he was ready to socialize somewhere like Cambridge. While he was waiting for the academic year to start, he started to gamble again, which he had started doing when he was 18. Mm. He had had some success and was convinced that gambling could provide him with income without him having to work a boring job or deal with any stupid employers. Now, obviously, because Richard is so smart, he thought he was a stock market whiz and placed bets with bookies on what he thought certain stock trends would be. I guess he's not... He's gambling on the stock market. He's not actually, like, investing in stocks. He's literally, like, taking bets on stocks with a bookie. Also, being smart has nothing to do with the stock market. Thank you. Correct, Monique. I'm so happy you know that. I don't know dick about the stock market. (laughs) But you know that. I do know that. Yeah. Well, you're smarter than Richard in that aspect. I mean, you know, and that's the thing. There there are people in, in my orbit that are similarly afflicted. To this we, we've discussed this off air of that they were they tested gifted at a so very young so age smart yes and they decided that that meant that translated to every aspect of their life yes of course and their life is a shit show because when they were in first grade they tested in high school levels so clearly that means i'm nailing it yeah and no it means that you got a five on an ap test it doesn't mean that you know how to deal with people. Or you have it emotional intelligence. You have or, any emotional yeah, intelligence. street smarts or anything like that. Or that you know how the fucking stock market works. Facts. It's ridiculous. Doing math puzzles and word puzzles on a game show is, is not the same market. as the fucking stock market. You <laughs> exactly. fucking idiot. Exactly. Oh my god. I did not test gifted. And I fucking know this. <laughs> so... For a while, he was up by 6,000 pounds, and he had convinced himself that his above-average intelligence made him smart enough to predict accurate trends in the stock market. Good for you. But, as Monique said, and (laughs) as I'm sure anyone will tell you, that's pretty much impossible. So, when he lost everything a week before he was supposed to start school, he was shocked and started to think he was fooling himself. I mean, yeah. Yeah. As a result, his confidence is almost non-existent by the time he starts school, and getting off on the wrong foot didn't excel academically or socially. And in Cambridge, no fucking less. Cambridge, yeah. This is not like Miami-Dade Community College. No No. shade, but you know. 
This is a big deal. It's a big fucking deal. Yeah. And I know it's not a community college anymore. Don't fucking come for me. <laughs> I love They're you. They're coming for you. <laughs> so Richard began to fall behind and lost any motivation to go to class. Mm. In 2008, while still at Cambridge, he was invited to be on the Countdown Championship champion show. And since he had never felt better than when he had proven himself on Countdown, he agreed to compete. But... He had completely lost his mojo and had no motivation to win or confidence in his abilities. Mm, Funny. I know. That's going to get bad. Oh, shit. I I mean, I figured it's it's the crime time. (laughs) Crime time. In the first round, he competed against show favorite John Corby. Richard's performance was a joke. During the word portion, he submitted several non-existent words, such as the absolutely nonsensical quote-unquote word, Gandazig, spelled G-A-N-D-I-S-E-E-G, which, sure, what? Those letters don't even go together. That's called a Hail Mary. <laughs> that is a Hail Mary. <laughs> so Richard earned the lowest score in the competition and was badly ridiculed. Oof. Gandazig even became an inside joke with Countdown fans and players would play the non-word if they knew they could no longer win on like subsequent episodes, which absolutely humiliated him. After starting out with such promise, his countdown career ends in disgrace. On January 14th, 2009, the episode aired on TV and Richard decided to drop out of college. Mm. Since he liked hiking and camping, he decided that he was going to live a nomadic existence, traveling around the UK and Europe with a tent and occasionally staying in hostels. I mean... Not your dream, I know. One, not my dream. Also, like, you know, to me, the, the, the... I'm going to go and, like, go off the grid and, like, live in a cabin in the woods. It's very Ted Kaczynski to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's fair. So, it, to me, it's just, like, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> Pick one. There's so many to choose so from. So many red flags. It's, like, a 90% off sale at the red flag store is what's happening here. It's <laughs> what's happening. He's got all of them in his basket. He's fucking yes. going to check out. So... Over the next few years, Richard was floating around between schools and jobs and spent most of his free time obsessively gaming. Then he began writing. First, it was just for fun, but then he started working for freelance sites, Mm -hmm. writing articles for three pounds an hour until he got swindled on 30 articles, which he was never paid for. Oh, shit. This meandering existence continued on until August 2011, when Richard decided to apply to college again at the age of 25. He was accepted as a mature student at the University of Greenwich in London, which, while not quite as prestigious as Cambridge, was still very well respected as an institution. Mm -hmm. Richard could finally focus on his studies. He made friends who shared his love of board games, and even though they smoked weed, which Richard didn't like, and they gave him a bit of a hard time for, he finally felt like he was doing well socially. Okay. Plus, they respected him for being a countdown champion and took advantage of having him on their team for trivia night at the pub. Which, oh, which he would basically win. For. Yeah, basically win single handedly. Yeah. In September 2012, him and a few friends went to the student union bar for a drink, which was a typical student pub with food and drinks, plus games and pool tables. When he took a seat at the counter, the bartender greeted him with a warm, friendly smile, and he was immediately enamored. Mm. The bartender was Ella Durant. She was 21 and enjoying her life as a student at the University of Greenwich. She was studying drama and politics and was captain of her netball team. Mm. She enjoyed skiing and campaigning for the Student Association. The outgoing young woman even volunteered as a London ambassador, welcoming people to the city on behalf of the mayor's office. Her friendly and approachable personality made her an excellent bartender in the student pub, which was a popular hangout on campus exclusively for students. 
In September 2012, she was working at the pub when a slightly older student came in and sat down at the counter. He was thin and unremarkable looking, with dark-rimmed glasses and a little bit of stubble. She greeted him with her usual welcoming smile, but didn't think anything of their interaction. He was like, uh, she's in love with me, because he doesn't understand that that's literally a fucking bartender's job, is to be pleasant to you, because if they are, even though I know it's different in Europe, like tipping stuff, if they're nice to you, you give them money. Yes. That's their job. And you want to buy more drinks and hang out and talk to them. You want to buy yeah. more drinks and pay more money for them. Yes. Facts. Honey, Richard, I no. know. No. I know. She's not in love with you. She's just trying to get paid. Thank you, Monique. You're welcome. Richard, on the other hand, was already infatuated. Yep. He watched her as she pulled beers and poured drinks, his eyes following her constantly. He thought her greeting to him had felt so genuine and described her as simple yet enchanting. Hmm. She reminded him of Princess Leia and yes, she was beautiful, but that wasn't what had caught his attention. He said it was her smile. He was used to people giving him fake smiles that didn't reach their eyes, but Ella's smile was genuine and warm. And he thought she smiled just a little bit bigger when she saw him. I'll bet. Ugh. Richard immediately started coming into the pub to see her whenever he could. And of course, Ella was always just her usual friendly self, smiling and chatting with the customers, which obviously included Richard. Yeah. While she was barely aware of his existence beyond that of a customer at her job, he was busy finding out her name and working mm. out her schedule at the pub. She didn't know that he was watching her constantly while she worked and that he only ever came into the pub when she was scheduled. Mm. Sometimes he would sit and stare at her for so long that it raised the hairs on the back of her neck, but she tried to convince herself that she was overreacting. Honey, no. I mean, yes, I get it, but no. As soon as he could work it into conversation, he told her about his countdown win. Obvious. And said he thought she might have recognized him. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> I'm so famous. <laughs> A few weeks later, when there was a quiz night at the pub, Richard made sure him and Ella were on the same team. When it was over to celebrate their high score, Richard gave Ella a hug. While it surprised her, she accepted the hug from the near stranger, thinking he was just being friendly. And when he sent her a friend request on Facebook, she accepted. When he left, Richard gave her a kiss on the cheek, ecstatic that their relationship had taken a new step. Oh my god. Plus, he couldn't wait to learn more about her through her Facebook. Oh god. I know. I know. From her Facebook, he was able to find her Twitter feed. Now, Ella was a prolific tweeter and Richard is so obsessed with her that he read every single one. Uh-uh. Then he started to try to find connections between what she was posting and the interactions they'd had. Oh god. He was convinced the timing of some of them could not be coincidence and believed that Ella was secretly communicating with him. Oh my god. And more specifically, revealing her feelings for him through her Twitter feed. Oh my god. I just... I know. When you hear me say it, it sounds as ridiculous as it actually is, because it's fucking ridiculous. And it's funny, because unbeknownst to me, prior to recording... (laughs) I didn't bring it up, but we actually had... Quite a conversation about stalking. We had a whole convo about stalking. <laughs> and, and I just like tucked this social inside. media. And she was just kind of like, hey. I had my little secretive smile and I was like, girl, you don't even know. You don't even know. Surprise. And and, and how I was saying that, well, we were talking about how one, I can't imagine having access to social media as a child. As a teenager, no. A teenager. Yeah. I don't know. How, how anyone's doing it. Yeah. In this day and age. Yeah. And two, that 
as I've mentioned before, I do have a bit of an obsessive personality. And so if I'm involved, if there's anyone I like, if I am following you, friends with you on social media, you get a mute or un- or an unfollow immediately. Out of sight, out of mind. I, I do not even want to go down yep. the possibility <laughs> of even like a light stock. I don't blame you. It's a slippery slope. And like Absolutely. once you're in it, you're in it. And it like, it feeds that addiction. Like, and you get that it, little like rush from it almost. Yeah. You feel a little like high. Yeah. Yeah, like no. I get it, but no, but no, no, I this is know. so bad and for you. We've just so normalized yes. cyber stalking that yes. that's like a totally normal thing. Like, yeah, of course I cyber stalked you. Like, whatever, it's no big deal. But like, you see how insidious it can be. You see how it can turn. Yeah, there's a difference of like some dude is chatting you up. You're like, okay, I got it. I got to make sure this is legit. Like, yeah, make sure this is legit. This person isn't crazy. They're not, I'm not being catfished. Yeah, I'm not being catfished. But then after that, like, let it go. And yeah. and if you feel the need, if there's a situation where you're like, something's not lining up and I need to look this up, get the fuck out of the situation. Exactly. Don't be involved. Like, no, no, no. Just leave. Leave. Don't don't stalk. Just leave. Just be like, my, I'm good. my yeah. ex-boyfriend came back or whatever the fuck. Or whatever. Yeah. Whatever thing you need to do. My I'm, spidey I'm moving, senses are tingling. I gotta get I'm the fuck out of here. I'm moving to Yemen to use a friend's... Uh, <laughs> one, one, two, three, Yemen lane, Yemen! <laughs> whatever the fuck you have to do. Get the fuck out. Facts. You heard it from Monique first. Move to Yemen. Move to Yemen. (laughs) On a high from the success of the pub quiz and the brief kiss to her cheek, he immediately started to strategize about how he was going to get the girl and decided the best way to impress her was to win on a TV game show. Another one. Obviously. Yeah. But this time on a team with her. Enter... The University Challenge on BBC, which is a prestigious game show featuring teams of four students from different colleges in knockout challenges, answering questions across a range of subjects. Honestly, Richard didn't think Ella was going to be a big help on the team, but he was willing to pick up the slack if it meant they were going to get to spend time together. How nice. I know. So flattering. Thanks. (laughs) Fuck you. She was surprised and a little amused when he invited her to the team saying, quote, I don't know if I'm brainy enough, Rich, end quote. He responded saying... We need beauty as well as brains. Oh, I know. Thanks. You. That's what I wanted to hear about right. this. That shit when it's like they think they're giving you a compliment. Yeah. And you're like, that's kind of the most insulting shit you could yeah. have said to Yeah, it's me. like I'm not flattered at all. Since he thought she'd be super excited about it, he already had the entry form ready and basically just shoved it to her. <gasps> and Ella promised to fill it out when she had time. Richard also told her that she needed to submit a photo with the application. And since she was busy, she told him to just pick one for her. So that night, Richard went through her Facebook photos and used the topic of her photo as an excuse to private chat with her. Maybe this one he sent her. He didn't send her a photo with it. She's like, what photo are you talking about? He responded saying, quote, you're wearing a low cut black lace trim top. Oh my God. On your pink lips, a mischievous smile is playing. No. End quote. No. Which I literally just have after this. Run. Creepy as fuck in all capital letters. Girl, you Because that is... Yes, facts. No. Because that is a terrifying answer to give somebody. I'm sorry. I'm sure he thought it was cute and like flirty. No. No. N-O. You're in danger, girl. But she tried to play it off saying, quote, if you think I look smart enough, end quote. So by this time, Richard had figured out Ella's work schedule and made sure to hang out in the student union pub while she worked her shift. When he wasn't creeping on Ella, he was brushing up on trivia to prepare for the show 
And when he wasn't studying or hanging out in the pub staring at Ella, he continued to Facebook stalk her, liking and commenting on photos and posts, even ones from years ago. That's the worst. That's really creepy. That's next level creepy. Well, because it's also, I even get like going through the shit from years ago, but when you like it, you let them know. That you're going. That you're going. Yes. Deep into the vault. And clearly you don't care that they know that you know that you're just like creeping on them. Yeah. I have an an ex who does that every six months No, no, I don't like that at all. And it's odd. Yeah. And a little creepy, I'm sure. I haven't talked to you in like a decade. Why are you liking my picture from three years ago? Yeah. Weird. I know. Yeah. I know. Then one day he logged on and found himself blocked from her account. Yes! Ella had unfriended him. Yes. But Richard knew there must be an explanation and went to talk to Ella to ask her why. Yeah, you're a fucking creep. She told him, quote, you're kind of freaking me out. You're a good guy, but you're being far too forward, end quote. And of course, Richard was disappointed, but asked if she would still audition for the university challenge with him. Ella, feeling a little bad, said she would, but made sure he knew it was only as friends. But Richard couldn't resist. He knew this was his moment and decided to declare his love for her. Oh, read the fucking room, homie. Literally. Literally, she just said, only as friends. I just want to do it as friends. And And he's like, I'm going to tell her I love her. Yes, dude. Signals. I am not into this. Pick up what she's putting down, dude. Consent is not happening here. Facts. So he decided to declare his love for her. He told her that she was the Princess Leia to his Han Solo and that she was the only one for him and that they were destined to be together. Ella obviously didn't return his feelings and was a little freaked out since she literally just told him she wanted to be friends. So she immediately rescinded her offer to compete with him on the university challenge. Mm -hmm. He found a replacement, but his heart wasn't in it anymore and the team failed the audition, never even making it onto the first round. Oh shit. Over the next few weeks, Richard's behavior became more and more erratic. He picked (sighs) petty fights with his friends, kept gambling, and was drinking way more than usual. Sometimes he would down two bottles of wine, then go to a club. If he couldn't get past the bouncers, he'd climb the fence. Oh my god. I know. And then pick fights when he was asked to leave. Richard was depressed that he couldn't see Ella's Facebook anymore, but at least there was still her Twitter and Instagram. Mm. And as a cheerful and outgoing person, she was a frequent user of social media. Scrolling through her Twitter, he found a post that was a meme that said, quote, when I say I'm done, I mean fight for me, end quote. Oh my god. And Richard- And I see that shit everywhere. I see I it all know. the time. It's like, don't do that. Again, not victim blaming, but like, don't, because- They'll take anything and turn it around to be like, well, this is what it actually means. It's confirming what I believe, not what you actually told me. Yes. And as Monique just said, that's exactly what happened. Richard was convinced that the tweet was directed at him. He considered his message received and was ready for the challenge. Oh my God. He was at the bar for every one of Ella's shifts, staying the entire time nonstop staring at her. Eventually, Ella was so uncomfortable that she switched jobs with a colleague just so she could work in the kitchen where he couldn't see her. Oh my god. I know. She shouldn't have to do this. You should just leave her the fuck alone. Outside work, she tried to avoid him, but could always feel him lurking around and that she was still being watched. Oh my god. 
one day yeah. in December, he stopped her and said, quote, I just want to wish you a happy Christmas, end quote. Making some excuse, she slipped away as quickly as possible. Later that day, he checked her Twitter and was over the moon to see a post that said, quote, just wanted to say that I love you, end quote. There was no mention of him. Of course. Because he, she's not into him. But he was convinced her use of, quote, just wanted to, end quote, echoed his earlier line and indicated that the tweet was actually for him. If this sounds delusional, that's because it is. When university started up after the break, Richard sent Ella a Valentine's Day card. He had gotten her dress from the university challenge application and thought oh it would my show God. Yes. And thought it would show Ella how smart <sighs> and resourceful he was. Instead of a fucking stalker? Yes. Instead, she was terrified because Richard now knew where she lived. Oh my god, honey. It was clear to Ella that Richard was taking things way too far, and she was terrified to run into him. She tried to be polite, then ignoring him and telling him to leave her alone. Finally, she screamed at him to get away from her. But even that didn't work. By April 2013, she was so uncomfortable that she complained to the university authorities. Stalking is not uncommon on college campuses, but 51% of perpetrators were allowed to remain at their school even after a complaint had been filed. Yep. And it was also found that most of the universities in the UK did not have specific policies to address stalking on oh. campus. She complained to the student union and Richard was made to attend counseling and to sign a contract saying he would stop harassing Ella. But nothing else was done to actually prevent him from seeing her. <laughs> she posted about her frustration on Twitter saying, quote, not happy that he's going to be let back into the student union where I work. I just want it to stop. Oh, but like that wasn't directed towards him though. So here's the thing. She ends that with a little emoticon, which is the colon in the little slash line, which is like the little meh face. And Richard saw the tweet, but to him, the emoticon at the end meant that she didn't really mean what she had written oh, and that it was fucking God. just another test for him. You're going to be infuriated I'm already through this whole story. Outraged. You should be. Because he couldn't see her as much without risking getting into trouble with the university, he started to call her instead. And unsurprisingly, she didn't usually answer. So he started leaving her messages. In one, he told her that it was love at first sight. Around the same time, she posted a tweet that said, quote, you had me at hello, end quote. Maybe she was watching Jerry Maguire. Facts. And that all of these are coincidences and have literally nothing to do with you. Yeah. But he doesn't think that. These are all secret messages she's sending him, of course. Richard was thrilled that his strategy to woo Ella was working and that she's sending him these coded messages. Sometimes when he called her, he would just play her song so she knew he was always thinking of her and she could listen to them back and think of him. Ella continued to avoid Richard and was even getting pretty good at it. But he kept stalking her social media, kept calling, kept sending love letters, and kept playing her songs. When Ella kept getting these quote-unquote love letters from Richard, she finally went to the police. Yeah. She hadn't taken more serious measures against him before this because she had felt sorry for him and yeah. didn't want to seem mean. Mm. But Richard was becoming more unstable as time went on and Ella was starting to get worried. She wasn't just annoyed now. She was genuinely terrified. Yeah. Just the sight of him would send her into a panic attack that made it nearly impossible to breathe. And she would scream at him to leave her alone. Unfortunately, Ella's trip to the police hadn't resulted in anything. Yep. Although stalking had been a crime in the UK since 2012, the police told her these cases are 
hard to prove, let alone prosecute, mm-hmm. and there was very little they could do, since Richard technically hadn't harmed her. She hoped the police would at least warn Richard away from her, but all they did was report her concerns to the university. However, the university finally took action and banned Richard from the student union building where Ella worked. Mm-hmm. Not long after, Ella graduated with a BA in politics and drama and moved home to take a job in Exeter. Between the police warning and her move, Richard backed off and Ella started to go back to her life. As months passed, she became less scared and began to relax. But Richard hadn't forgotten his sweet Ella. After Ella graduated, Richard was on a roller coaster of highs and lows. When he was on a high, he worked out, lifted weights, and listened to music. When he was low, he abused his friends, got wasted, and got into fights. He didn't know what to do, but the more she pushed him away, the more determined he became to pursue her. He knew her visit to police meant that she might have been serious about not wanting to see him and wondered why she teased him with all her quote-unquote secret Twitter messages. Can you imagine being told that by someone that the only reason they exist in your orbit is because you're terrified of them and all you want is for them to go away? And then they're like, what about your secret Twitter messages? I yeah. mean... Like, talk about reading into stuff, dude. Jesus. Like, I feel that if I was told that, I wouldn't even be like, homie, you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? I would be genuinely fucking terrified. Yes! It's fucking terrifying. Yeah. He began to think that maybe those messages weren't meant for him after all. <laughs> Shocking, right? That. In October 2013, Greenwich held a graduation ceremony. By this time, Richard hadn't seen Ella in six months, but even knowing she didn't want him there, he sat right in front of her during the ceremony. She saw him and tried to swap places with someone, but as Richard said, quote, it was too late. As the photo was taken, I was standing near her, end quote. He had ruined what should have been a moment of joy for Ella, her college graduation, and it became just another incident with Richard. What an asshole. He's a fucking dick. He really is. After that, Richard finally realized and acknowledged that he was a stalker, but insisted it's not such a bad thing when it comes from a place of love. Oh, fuck you. He was a stalker, yes, but he was a benevolent one and convinced himself that he was different than a so-called, quote-unquote, malevolent stalker. Fuck you. Correct, Monique. With something hard and sandpapery. Because you're ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. After all... Richard had been raised in a society that implied that there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. Rom-coms often featured a male love interest who spends... Exactly. I hate this so much. I hate this so much. Who spends the film chasing the girl, and at the end, his persistence is rewarded Mm -hmm. when she inevitably falls for him. So Richard started calling her again and leaving messages when she inevitably didn't pick up. He was determined to tell her his new plan and sent her a Valentine's Day card with a hint, which was a detailed drawing of her as a fairy tale princess with Richard proposing to her and holding hands with two children. So on his little card, he wrote her a poem in gel pens and drew a heart around their initials. Now, for obvious reasons, Ella had been very cautious about letting people know where she lived and made sure that all of her friends knew not to tell Richard. But... Richard being Richard, found her address by tracking down her mother on the electoral (gasps) roll and was able to mail her his homemade card. Ella panicked when she saw the Valentine's Day proposal and immediately called the police. 
Once again, they didn't take her seriously, and this time she left in tears. A policewoman did pay Richard a visit to once again warn him away from Ella, but again, Richard didn't think that he was doing anything wrong. And he also, wasn't what showing... did they actually fucking do to him? Just be like, don't do that. Just don't do that. Leave her alone. So he's getting away with it. Exactly. But he wasn't showing up unexpectedly. He just sent her a card. A beautiful card. This is what he's telling himself. Oh my god. The card was just the beginning of his new project. Oh my god. Ella had become his muse, and the princess he had drawn on the card was a character that he was going to write a book about. A fairy tale, their fairy tale. Hmm. He was going to call it The World Rose. His heroine was obviously going to be named Ella, but using some clever wordplay, he changed her last name to Tundra instead of Durant. Despite being warned not to contact or visit Ella, this became one of the happiest times in his life. Although he couldn't see or talk to Ella, she was with him in spirit as he wrote this quote-unquote masterpiece for her. In the book, she was a perfect princess, and he was her faithful bulldog. While he worked on his novel, he barely ate, and he started to neglect his schoolwork. But he still needed money, and gambling wasn't going well. So he took any job he could find. He sold magnets for a contradictory boss, which ended when he threw a box of magnets at her head and told her to fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) He was a landscape gardener, which ended once he mentioned he'd won on Countdown. Plus, he did other odd jobs. Instead of worrying about work, Richard threw himself into his creative hobbies, not only writing, but he also worked on his YouTube channel where he posted pieces of classical music, pairing them with famous paintings and writing a little blurb about them, which was surprisingly well-received, actually. Hmm. When he couldn't find more work in London, he decided to once again become a nomad for the summer. He packed up his laptop, bought a tent for £10, and took a train to Kent, England, where he planned to explore the southeast part of England. He camped wherever suited him and just packed up early in the morning before anyone would find him. He stayed in a youth hostel for a while and spent his days writing and editing his novel in a local pub. When he couldn't afford that anymore, he continued south. He made it to Folkestone, where he could camp on the beach, write his book, and listen to music. When he went as far as he could in England, he flew to Belgium, where his mother lived. His book was almost finished, but he was enjoying writing. So he started a blog about his travels called Richard Britton's Blog. Musings from the author and countdown champion. Oh, God. I know. Finally, his book was finished. The World Rose, as he had titled it, was 60,000 words. Believing he had written the next bestseller, he tried to get an agent, but was told it needed to be 70,000 words. He argued that many great works of literature are less than 70,000 words, but he couldn't convince an agent to take on his book and was frustrated that they couldn't see his genius. So instead, Richard joined Wattpad, a website where people could self-publish and Mm. have their work critiqued by the millions of Wattpad users. Oof. I know. Oof. I'm guessing it's not going to go great. (laughs) Yeah. As you've uh, encountered his his response to online commenters before, yeah, safe to assume. Oof. Since it was mainly new authors and teenagers submitting stories on the site, Richard already assumed that his writing was far superior to everyone else's. Duh, obvi. Yeah, but he thought it would bring attention to his work and possibly attract an agent or publisher, so he uploaded the prologue with a note saying that anyone wanting the rest of the story could buy it on Amazon. He described The World Rose as, quote, an epic fairy tale romance set in a semi-fictional ancient world, end quote, which, oh my god, I've never heard that before. And he claimed it was a, quote, stunningly original piece of literature, end quote. 
based this is, but this is per him this is per him oh, this is him okay. him saying this okay a nice uh unbiased opinion yeah of course <laughs> based on his real life muse princess ella was a quote renowned beauty the rose of the world end quote Richard even had the audacity to claim that critics had compared his work to Dickens. Get the fuck out. Girl. Shakespeare, J.K. Rowling, Raymond Feist, and Nora Roberts. Get the fuck Yeah, dude, come on. What? First of all, that's like the most eclectic mix of authors I've ever uh, encountered. Also, like, eh, settle down. No, it was like, who are the best at everything? At everything, yeah. I am all of those. I am all of the best. No one is like Margaret Atwood. Is the next William Shakespeare? No. Have you read either one of their works? They're, They're nothing alike. Yes, all. exactly. Like, what the fuck are you talking Thank about? Thank you. Oh my god. Finally, he wrote, "Quote: I shall be relentless in promoting my work for the next several months, and I intend to try some novel techniques. So don't be surprised if you see me in the news." End quote. Oh no. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't sound good. It sounds ominous as fuck. Yeah, it does. After he finished posting, he sat back and waited for the praise to roll in. Mm. He was excited when he got a decent number of downloads, and there were some people who said that they liked it, while others obviously had critiques. Richard responded to all of them. He knew because they were less intelligent than him that they wouldn't understand the genius of the world rose and that he would have to explain it to them. Probably. Of course. His responses were defensive at best and patronizing at worst. Mm. He felt it was his duty to educate the simpletons who had given him feedback, all the while waiting for the genuine reviews from the intelligent critics. Meanwhile, Ella had quietly moved to Scotland for work in 2014. She hadn't heard from Richard in six months and with 500 miles between them had once again begun to relax. Mm. But there was always that fear in the back of her mind that he might return one day out of the blue. Ah, oh, poor bunny. And eventually, he did. No. Richard, through a new Twitter handle, at the World Rose, reached out to her and asked her to read his self-published novel so she could tell him what she thought. Upset that he was contacting her again, she immediately blocked him, but didn't bother going to the police since it accomplished literally nothing before, and she was convinced that he wouldn't be able to find her in Scotland. Yeah. But this is Richard we're talking about. And using her social media for clues, he was able to find out where she was working. Girl, this is when you get like the, the fake accounts. Right? Or or just I would get just off get off of social, social media. media. Like it really would not matter that much to me. Like I would rather not be stalked than have this man in my life. Yeah. Again, not victim blaming. Not victim blaming, yes. But just like oh my you got to do what you got to do sometimes. And like the cops are not going to help you with anything. I had a, a stalking situation in my family. Oh, shit. And the cops did a dude dick. And this person had written threatening letters. Threatening oh, shit. Le- like, they didn't do dick. Yeah. And this was for years. For it's, years. Yeah. And I know stalking is a crime and is considered a crime, but I feel like to some people it feels like that, like, gray area of, like, pre-crime where it's, like, you're not really doing anything. And you're just like, like watching and keeping tabs on somebody. It's just like you've had the idea. You're not actually doing anything. And it's like. And it's like, what's the problem? They like you. Oh, you should that's be so the fucking problem. Yes. That's what the fuck it is. Yes. That too is a very common. That was literally included in the book as like one of the common responses to people dismissing stalking is there's like, you should be flattered. Like he yeah. likes you. Yeah. Yeah. So. He's able to find out where she's working. And he had come up with a quote-unquote 
brilliant plan that would make them both rich, and he needed to tell her about it. On August 26, 2014, he tweeted, quote, I think I might move to Scotland, end quote. <gasps> I know, terrifying. Oh my god, chills. In September of that same year, Scotland went to the polls to decide whether they were going to declare independence from the United Kingdom, and Richard believed that if they voted to stay, then that was a sign that he too should stay his course and continue to pursue Ella. Incidentally, not stay put where you are. Right? Do Interesting. You, like, hear yourself? Sometimes just, like, write something down and, like, read it out loud. And, like, see how crazy you sound to yourself out loud. And again, this is... I'm someone, as I've mentioned before, I don't really believe in coincidence. I thought about you the whole time I was, like, but thinking about this. Because I was like, this is an actual instance of... These are all coincidences. She's not sending you secret messages. Like, you're looking for shit and you're making coincidences. Right. It's you looking for something that's not there. Yes. There's a different... Like... Oh my god, the clock stopped. That means something. Maybe it means that the battery's dead. Yeah, exactly. Now, if the clock keeps stopping at the same time, and you yeah. switch out the clock, and you bring in another clock, and that keeps happening, okay, what's that about? Something's weird. That's a different situation. Agreed. But you you know, that's a thing. You can find a pattern in anything if you want to. Yes, if you're looking for it. If you're looking for it. And that is very heavily what this person is doing. A hundred fucking percent. And ruining this girl's life in the process. Yes. Oh my yes. God. And there's, and, and if there's any of you out there who are like me that uh, doesn't believe in coincidence and does believe that there's a intelligent design to things and you can see how this is not that. Not that. Yes. At all. No. No, no, no. My God. The yeah. This is delusional is thinking. Forehead. Yeah. I wish all of you could see Monique's face through this uh, story because one, she's enraged. Two, just like utter shock at the audacity of this motherfucker. Yes. And just exhausted. Yes. Because this is not an isolated situation. No. No, it is not. This happens to people all the fucking time. This is happening to people right now. Yep. As you're listening to this. As and they're trying talking. to get help and the cops are like, I mean. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything. You should be flattered. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately for Ella, Scotland did vote to stay in the United Kingdom and Richard became determined to tell her his new plan in person. The day after the vote, Ella walked out of her job into her worst nightmare. Ugh. Richard was in Scotland waiting for her outside of her work. <gasps> he was staring at the door, waiting for her, waving her over and trying to talk to her. Oh my God. In shock, she took off calling 999 and heading for a crowded area. The police met her at Central Station, but Richard had already left. They took her statement, then drove her home to make sure he wasn't waiting for her there. Richard was bummed that Ella had run from him. But he just wanted to tell her his plan because Richard had decided that the best way to get publicity for his book was for him to pretend to kidnap Ella. Oh my fucking God. They would camp out while the police searched for her. Then they would return and she would tell everyone that they were in love, which even if she did, dude, you're describing Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. That's and not love. That is not love. And voila. The book would sell like crazy. They'd be rich and famous and live happily ever after. So Richard, because he's nothing if not incredibly tenacious, decided to try seeing Ella again the next day. But she'd called in sick to work and had barricaded herself in her flat, terrified because he had finally oh found her again God. after all this time. Two days later, she was leaving for work when Richard reappeared again, carrying his <sighs> doppel bag. 
he blocked her way and insisted that he needed to talk to her. But Ella was so sick of all of this that she screamed at him, causing a scene so that people would turn and look. She took a photo of him with her phone, saying it was evidence against him, and ran back into her office to call the police. By the time they arrived, Richard had already left. Mm. However, the Scottish police finally did what the English police hadn't. (gasps) They took Ella seriously. Thank God. They agreed to charge him with stalking when they found him because due to new anti-stalking legislation in Scotland, a person could be charged if they engaged in behavior that would likely cause the other person to suffer fear or alarm. Fuck yes. Richard's behavior obviously fit the bill and all they needed to do was find him. How many years at this point has this been going on? like five years this is six months after she's graduated and i think they knew each other for like a couple months before that so it's like maybe going on a year of knowing her still fuck yeah but rejected for like the millionth time richard went back to london and blamed himself for not being able to convince ella of his plan's potential not only would they have been in love and rich and famous from the book but ella who had studied drama at school could have played the lead role when they made the world rose into a movie, which was obviously going to happen. Obviously. On his way home, he wrote a blog post titled The Benevolent Stalker. Oh my god! Yeah. He's not even fucking like No, it. he fucking knows. And he's like proud of it. He's like, the, she's sending me secret messages. She really wants me. I only love her and want the best for her. So I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm a good person. What don't you see about this? That is his mentality. That is delusional thinking for the record. I am not justifying this. Your face is correct, Monique. (laughs) Yes. In the blog post, he spoke of his unrequited love for Ella and everything he'd done to try to win her over. He even wrote about his fake kidnapping plan. To him, it was just a great love story. He ended the post by saying, quote, I think our relationship is finished now. I gave it my best shot. But alas... I'll have to find another way. End quote. Didn't you just say it's fucking done? Literally. The most contradictory fucking statement I've ever read. Like, you just, you just negated what you said in the previous two sentences. What are you talking about? Let it go, homie. Literally. So Richard continues to float around and goes back to his transient life in London, which was actually a great place for the quote unquote tortured artist lifestyle because... There were plenty of places with free Wi-Fi, and Richard continued to spend his time holed up in libraries, pubs, and cafes writing. He posted on his blog almost every day. However, he wasn't getting nearly the praise he had expected, and things were going even worse for him on Wattpad with The World Rose. Um, have you guys not put together that I'm a fucking genius? Uh, he's so smart. He's the smartest man ever. He's so intelligent. You're all just idiots and you don't understand his book. Fucking believes. Thanks. I mean, it's... No offense, it's a fairy tale. How fucking complicated could it be? (laughs) On WattPress, he had gotten a reputation for being obnoxious and aggressive when responding to any critiques, which obviously made him a huge target for even more critical comments. Trolling it, baby. Yes, Yes, and Richard basically became a troll magnet. He genuinely didn't understand that by lashing out and being a dick to everyone, even those who tried to give helpful, constructive criticism, that he was attracting even more negative attention. He continued to believe he had already written a masterpiece that needed no further work and continued to dismiss every non-favorable opinion, even from successful authors. 
Eventually, it got to the point that Wattpad users were so fed up that they just wanted to punish his arrogance. <laughs> they wrote reviews for The World Rose on more prominent sites like Goodreads. Oh, shit. Yeah, which if you're not familiar with Goodreads, like the reviews on Goodreads carry the same weight for authors as reviews on Yelp do for businesses. Like, yeah. it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. Soon, The World Rose was flooded with one-star reviews. Oh, shit. One Wattpad user, an 18-year-old who called herself Paigey Lou, described herself as a writer, a reader, a critic, and an artist on her profile. Mm. She had a picture posted with her Wattpad profile along with her social media links and rules for interacting with her. In her description of herself, she said, quote, I have the worst luck, and I'm sure if you stay long enough, you will see this for yourself, end quote. When she saw Richard's responses to critiques, she decided to read the prologue and review it on Goodreads. She gave it, as you guessed... One star. Yes. And her 1500 word review was scathing. She said it was, quote, just awful. According to Paige, the world rose was bland and boring and she hated everything about it. <laughs> she said it was pretentious and full of stupid flowery language. Then she criticized his main character, Princess Ella, who she obviously hated. While Ella was, quote, the perfect princess, which Paige mocked him for at least getting something right in the fairy tale. Paige said she had absolutely no personality as a character. Mm -hmm. Quote, not only is Ella physically perfect, she's faint-hearted too. Such a fair maiden. Never was a maiden so fair, nor so beauteous. Oh, please. Ugh. Gag me. Ugh. End quote. Her advice to the author was mostly patronizing, but she did try to pepper in some genuine constructive criticism. Not that Richard would have been receptive. Right. Finally, Paige criticized Richard himself, saying she wouldn't even download a free copy of the whole book, oh, let alone pay for it. Damn! Yeah, savage. Despite what seemed like a harsh review, Paige ended it by saying that there was definitely potential here if only Richard had gotten someone to edit for him and hadn't alienated the users on Wattpad who were offering constructive advice. But she says, quote, Nobody wants to read a potentially good book we want to read books polished to perfection mm -hmm. and sadly i think the world rose is far from perfection end quote and page didn't hide behind user anonymity she posted the review under her real name page roland mm -hmm. and attached a recent photo of herself showing a happy red-headed teenager one of the lines in her review said cheekily quote mr Britton has gained a bit of infamy on wattpad where he is known for threatening users who don't praise him pray for me End quote. Oh, no. Is this what we call foreshadowing? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, no, Paige. Now, keep in mind, Richard is responding to every criticism that comes his way because he just can't not respond to it. And there are a lot of them. Even knowing that they're trolling him, he can't stop himself from saying something. He just had to get the last word. Paige's review was no worse than any of the others, but for some reason, reading Paige's review was the final straw for Richard. Oh my God. He was enraged, not just because she had attacked his writing, but because she had attacked Ella. Using Paige's Facebook profile, it was remarkably easy for Richard to find out where she worked at an Asda superstore in Scotland. Just two weeks after Ella had called the Scottish authorities on him, Richard was once again heading to Scotland. But this time, he wasn't going to see the love of his life. On October 3rd, 2014, after traveling 500 miles, Richard calmly walked into the Asda Superstore and picked out a bottle of white wine. He found Paige stocking shelves in the cereal aisle and quietly came up behind her. 
He then proceeded to bash her in the head as hard <gasps> as he could with the bottle. Oh my god. In the grocery store in broad fucking daylight with a bottle he got from the grocery store. The fucking balls on this guy. Like, insanity. As you can imagine, Paige's injuries were severe and required a lot of stitches, but she was alive. Thank fucking Christ. Yes. When she watched the video of her assault, she recognized Richard immediately and was able to identify him to the police. Thank God. She had seen pictures of him after they had fought online, and obviously he was a minor celebrity in the countdown world, so he was easily recognizable. After the attack, Richard had immediately gone back to England and returned to his weird, transient lifestyle. The next day, he went to a march for elephants and rhinos, but not because he gave a shit. He just thought lots of girls would be there, so why not? Oh my god, you're the worst. He spent his days exercising and writing until police were able to find him by tracing his cell phone. His signal had also proved that he had indeed been in the area of Paige's attack, and police arrested him. Mm. He was charged with brutally attacking Paige and stalking Emma. Mm. Finally. Fucking finally. He pleaded not guilty and was released while his trial was pending with orders to see a psychiatrist. Following the proper protocol, Richard's name was not released in connection with Paige Rowland's attack, so it was not reported in the media. Although it was quickly removed, a Wattpad user posted on the site about the attack, calling Richard out and shaming him for his actions. Remember that blog post he wrote called A Benevolent Stalker? How could I forget? Well, after the attack, it went viral, as Mm. you can imagine. It was all over social media and even got picked up by Jezebel. People were morbidly fascinated as the post gave incredible insight into the mind of a deranged stalker. It was so spot on that some people didn't think it was real and thought it had to have been made up or a parody. Wow. Most women were understandably sickened by the delusional rambling and horrified at his utter disregard for the unnamed woman he loved from afar, who he clearly knew didn't return his feelings, but he continued to pursue anyway. When Ella saw that Richard's fantasy about stalking her had gone viral, She was traumatized all over again. How could she not be? But since he was out on bail, she continued to live in fear, thinking he would come after her. She begged Jezebel to remove Richard's post, where commenters were warning that this kind of thinking could escalate into action, not realizing that it already had. Yeah. Because there had been no reports of Richard's attack on Paige, people didn't realize that this man's delusional thinking had already escalated into violence. While out on bail, Richard continued to post on his blog, constantly referencing Ella and Paige. He claimed that after seeing a psychiatrist, he was finally aware that he was wrong and that his thinking had been delusional. Mm. His post rarely got comments, but his benevolent stalker entry had hundreds. Eventually, Richard deleted the post, writing in its place, quote, There is no such thing as benevolent stalking. Thank you. Facts. Yes. Yes. This is now crystal clear to me. I was totally wrong. No means no. End quote. In a post titled A Reevaluation of Romance, he said, quote, I now recognize that my behavior was vile, selfish, and deluded. All I can say is, I'm sorry, genuinely, end quote. <sighs> that's coming for Um, seeing as I have two pages I left, I'm going to say left. probably that's horseshit. It's like you know people or something. Yeah. It's like you're, uh... It's like I spent my Sundays yeah. <laughs> watching 12-hour long marathons of snaps. And as we mentioned last episode, you can't change someone unless they themselves want to change. Yes. Attempting. Oh my fuck. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's very upsetting. You should be very upset. 
Infuriating. Infuriating. And, and what kills me is that these stocking cases are relatively unspectacular. You know, they're very common yes. and they're all treated the fucking same. Yes. Nothing fucking gets done. Nothing yes. gets fucking done until some crazy shit happens. It's like, well, we're going to call this Paige's law. Well, what the fuck happened to Paige? Yeah. Remember the like six times she was like, hey, can you get this guy? Because like he's stalking me and I'm very fuck worried that. and I fear for my life. And then they're like, eh, but he hasn't done anything yet. Come on. I just... It is infuriating. And honestly... That was one of the reasons I picked this story is because sometimes crime is not that yeah. big and gory and violent. Sometimes it is quiet and insidious mm -hmm. and terrifying. 10,000%. Like, I don't even want to know how many of our listeners are like, yeah, I had a stalker. Yeah. Yeah. Like casual. Oh my God. Yeah. This is horrifying. I know. Attempting to apologize, Richard reached out to Ellen Page via Twitter, but got no response. In March 2015, he published a poem called Apology to Scottish Lou, i.e. referencing Paige, whose username was Pagey Lou. In November 2015, Richard Britton pleaded guilty to assaulting Paige Rowland and stalking Ella Durant. He was sentenced to 30 months in prison with an indefinite order that prevented him from using any electronic device to monitor, follow, communicate, or contact or approach either of his victims again. While they were both relieved, neither Ella Durant nor Paige Rowland were ever the same again. Paige told reporters that the attack had made her afraid of meeting new people and nervous in big crowds. Ugh. The once confident and opinionated young woman was now terrified to share her thoughts, not just online, but even at school, which had caused her studies to suffer. Oh my god. Despite her severe injuries, a panel ruled that she had suffered no long-term physical effects of the attack, which was good. But they also said that this meant that she was denied any criminal injury compensation, which Fuck is you. really fucked up. Yeah, in my opinion. And I don't know why that is, but that is real grimy. After three years of living in fear, Ella was no longer the bubbly, friendly bartender who greeted everyone with a smile. She'd become increasingly reclusive. She kept her social media private and only her friends were allowed in. Regarding her ordeal with Richard, she said, quote, I feel incredibly let down by the police. I can't believe it's taken three years to get any sort of justice. If someone had listened to me and acted sooner then what happened to Paige might not have happened yeah. and I would not have been subjected to as long an ordeal, end quote. In 2017, after serving just 15 months of his 30-month sentence, oh. Richard was released. Look at that. He was given an indefinite non-harassment order for both Ella and Paige. He started another blog and wrote about his experiences in prison, including watching Dexter. Great. And befriending rapist George Cameron before he hung himself in his cell. Homie, you're not doing yourself any favors by being like, I'm rehabilitated and I used to watch serial killer. <laughs> I and, I, watch serial and I made friends show, with a rapist. And I made friends with a rapist, but I'm totally legit. It's on fine. It's totally cool. Yeah, no. Richard also claimed that an attack by a fellow inmate had caused him to start hearing voices saying he was the devil and staring into the sun for hours on end. Despite these new quirks, his posts made it seem as though he had finally realized the error of his ways and was at least aware of his own psychiatric condition. But then, in December 2019, Paige Rowland received a handwritten note from Richard, despite the indefinite order that banned him from contacting her. According to the Scottish newspaper The Daily Record, the note arrived on a torn piece of paper. In the note, Richard called her his, quote, Scottish thistle, end quote, my love page. What the fuck? 
he claimed he would, quote, love her now and forever, end quote, and explained that, quote, this page is torn because we are torn without each other, end quote. He also sent her a Facebook message. So now he's in love with Paige. Now he is in love with Paige. Quote, unquote, in love. This is not fucking love. Yes. This is obsession and infatuation and severely misguided attraction. Yes. Monique cannot handle it right now. No. No, I can't. This is insane. He also sent her a Facebook message that said, quote, I dreamed of you last night. Oh my fucking God. I know. I dreamed of you last night. Are you going to send me back to prison? Maybe I need it. I'm bored out of my mind. How's the nursing degree going? I was quite surprised they revealed such information about you in court. I was tempted to get a bus ticket to Dundee and come visit you, but I thought it might look weird. Any chance we could just become friends, actually? No. We could keep our communication secret like we did in last night's dream. <gasps> End quote. He then sent another message apologizing for the first and begging Paige not to tell. Since receiving the handwritten love letter, Paige has moved to a new address, but says, quote, I live in fear every day that he's going to track me down again. Oh I want people God. to know what this man is capable of, and nobody seems able to stop him. End quote. Before it was removed, the last line of Richard's last published poem said, quote, In the cereal aisle, we made contact with one another. Since that day, I have loved her like no other. End quote. And that is the batshit fucking crazy story of Richard Britton, who is released, is Just out, is living his life, and possibly still... This ended in the end of 2019, so... Fucking yesterday. Yeah. This man is still out there. He is, I'm assuming, as far as I know, still obsessed with Paige because he obviously hasn't learned anything from any of this fucking happening. And he's just allowed to do whatever the fuck he he's wants. Just to, as long as he doesn't contact them, which obviously he doesn't give a fuck, he's contacting them. Yep. What is the point of having laws? I don't understand. Because then it's like, I mean, we don't actually have to prosecute you. What is the point of having them? What is the point of having law enforcement, if they're not going to serve and protect, what is the fucking point? Yeah. It's fucking terrifying. I feel so (sighs) terrible for these girls. Like, this man is still fucking out there. He still lives within, like, train distance to them. Like, (sighs) what, 15 months in prison? This guy lost a year of his life for making these fucking women literally fear for the rest of their lives that he's never going to leave them alone. And it doesn't matter because... He can do whatever the fuck he wants and nothing's going to happen to him. Yeah. 15 months, he gives a shit. Yeah. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, like, it's like these people don't understand the concept of escalating behavior. Yes. It's deeply, deeply upsetting to me. It's one of those things like, I know nobody got murdered. I know nobody got raped. I know nobody's dismembered. It's still, it's still so upsetting and it's still so fucked up. It's more psychological torture than it is the physical aspect. And just, it's so horrifying. And this happens all the fucking time. And we're just like, "Eh, he's persistent. Eh." He likes you. He really likes likes you. And basically homeboy spent 15 months in prison. These women are, are in prison for the rest of their fucking lives. Yep. This is fucked. It's very fucked. I know. This is one of those that like is going to haunt you, but in like a different way than like the really violent ones haunt you. I mean, I'm enraged and I hate everything. Yeah. I kind of want to punch somebody after it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I fucking know, dude. Well, that was terrible. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Brought everyone down on that one. Watch yourselves though. Like fucking. People are crazy. People are crazy. And like. Listen to what this guy tells himself. Like, people will tell themselves 
anything to fit their own narrative. Like the narrative they want. They're willing to literally think that you're sending them secret Twitter messages. Like what the actual fuck? Your telling of the story was amazing. Good. Thank you. I actually felt like it was a very Monique telling of the story. I don't know why, but I like felt like I very like, I like channeled you when I was doing it. Maybe not. Maybe you're just rubbing off on me. I don't know. Is that a, I mean. I thought it was good. Well, you liked it, obviously. So, I I mean, obviously I thought I did a good job, but. No, I think you did a great job. Yeah. I'm just, I enraged and I hate everything. Eileen Ormsby is a fucking phenomenal writer. I read Stalkers and I think she's, she wrote about the dark web too. I think Silk Road was like her first book that she was really well known for. We talked about it. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think she has like another book, Psycho.com. That's really good. Anyway. If you're interested, you want a little true crime read on your free time, check her out. Eileen or- Ormsby. Eileen Ormsby. Ormsby. Yeah. Check that shit out. Yeah. So that you don't ever sleep again. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> you can be terrified that people are just watching you all the time, stalking your Facebook. Cyber stalking is still stalking, by the way. It is. It is. I know it feels very innocuous and it feels uh, it feels okay. It doesn't feel that bad, but... It is. Just think about it a little bit. It is. It's all terrible. Yep. People are terrible. They are terrible. Thank you for listening. Thank you. (laughs) Enjoy sleeping ever again. Sorry. Uh, Good luck with that. (laughs) My bad. You can find us on Instagram at another fucking horror podcast. I don't even want to fucking tell you my fucking Instagram. (laughs) But I'm gonna. (laughs) You can find me at pinupgirlmo. I ruin everything. You can find me at lobotomy. That's lobot period Amy. You know, Adam, what is it? Adam ruins everything? Yeah, fuck. Amy Amy ruins ruins everything. everything. (laughs) Damn it. You don't. I'm obsessed with you. Oh, thank you. I'm obsessed with you. Fuck. Please submit your stories, your personal stories. We do True Listener Tale episode every sixth episode, but we have like a... Running tally? A running tally. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so submit any of your cool creepy stories I hope you don't have stalker stories that break my heart yeah if you do and you want to submit that let us fucking know you can DM us on Instagram or you could send us an email at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking if you like us please be sure to rate review and subscribe please tell your friends about us thanks so much for listening we're obsessed with you yeah Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.